Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm Andrew Dould. We've had a little bit of a hiatus recently, but we're going to get things back going today. Today we have David Epstein with us. David is a New York Times bestselling author. He's the author of a book called The Sports Gene, and more recently a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's a very interesting episode. We talk about a number of different things, going back to his book, The Sports Gene, looking at athlete development, and then moving on to to range and things like career development. I think his book is very interesting for a wide range of, of people and will resonate with, with the listener uh, very much. So I hope you enjoy the episode. It's it's quite a long episode, uh, north of about two hours. So I won't keep you very long here today. Again, follow us on social media to, to stay up to date with the show. We've got a number of real good episodes on the horizon coming up in the next couple of months. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know. You can email us at thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, let us know. If you have any feedback for us, let us know as well. Uh, anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode with, with David, and we will see you back soon. Thanks. Okay, so we're here in Washington, D.C. today, our nation's capital. I'm joined by David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, and more recently, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David's a journalist, multiple New York Times bestselling author. David, thanks so much for, for doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for coming here for me. Yeah, you're welcome. So I, I got I to gotta say, the first time that I met you was in Boston. You probably don't, don't know this. We were actually, we didn't meet, but I was in the audience listening to you speak at the, I think it was the 2016 Annual Arthroscopy Association of North America, or ANA meeting, which was being held in Boston. And I think you were the so-called keynote speaker, presidential speaker that day where you talked about your book, The Sports Gene. And I remember listening to your talk and thinking, wow, this is, this is the greatest talk I've heard about sports. <laughs> uh, right. I, actually, I actually still tell some of the stories or anecdotes and clips that you presented at that lecture, which weren't I don't think they were included in the book, and somehow you got them. Like that one clip, I think it was Cristiano Ronaldo heading the ball into the net with the lights turned off. Yeah, so this was actually a television sort of recreation. So were you were you there? No, no, I wasn't there. Okay. I wasn't there. Um, no, so it was a recreation of sort of a group of famous sports science studies, and it was checking for uh, what perceptual information basically do athletes need to... Uh, you know, execute the skills that they need to on the high level. And, and in this particular clip, it starts with a guy named Ronald, who is like a decent amateur soccer player, basically. And what happens is uh, there's a corner kick, and he has to try to head it into the goal, uh, but the lights are turned out like about midway through the ball flight, basically. Right. And so Ronald's running at the ball. You know, he knows the general vicinity of where it's going to go. Uh, he tries to head it, but then when the lights go out, he completely misses it, right? It flies like several feet right, to his left, right. basically, and the commentator sort of says like, uh, you know, uh, he missed by a wide margin. Perhaps not that surprising. <laughs> and you're like, so, yeah, it's not that surprising because the lights get turned out. Right. We, we can see in night vision, right, in, yeah. in the clip. So just to, just to give you some background, so I, th I think when I retell the story, I probably overemphasize it that the lights are turned off as the foot hits the ball. Yeah. But it is early. Like It's early. It's so, early. It's like so just after the foot. Basically, the you guys, or whoever it is that's doing this, you're in a soccer stadium in the middle of the night. Yeah. So it's pitch black. You can't, you literally couldn't see your yeah. hand in front of your no face. Light. That's right. And, but they can turn the lights on and off in the stadium so people can 
you know, see, and then yeah. all of a sudden crank the lights right. off, and it's you know what your eyes are like when you're in a bright lit room, and they turn off the the lights all of a sudden. You, yeah. Your light eyes quickly accommodate, but you can't see anything. You literally can't see your hand in front of the place. So, I think I over exaggerate the story by saying that right as the Goal, the ball is kicked from the corner. The lights get shut off. No, so, anyways, can, but that's can basically continue. true, right? Or as yeah. if he like closed his eyes suddenly, right? Right. Um, and so it's funny to watch because in the night vision you see he like it's funny to watch someone trying to like execute a header and they're like five feet away from the ball or three feet away from the right. ball or whatever, and he just, just like terrible. thrusts his body and totally misses it, right? And so then the next part of the clip is obviously a slightly better uh, soccer player, Cristiano Ronaldo. So it's set up as Ronald versus Ronaldo, right? And right. in this case. Um, he once the lights go out he connects perfectly and actually heads it right into the corner of the goal exactly sort of how you would want to right and i think one of the interesting things about the clip is you know um cristiano ronaldo is obviously uh strong and he's fast but this skill has nothing to do with his strength or his speed or his being like an incredibly good looking underwear model or any of those <laughs> things right? guys like allergic to wearing a shirt but yeah maybe, maybe we would be too if, yeah uh, right his spot. um but it shows that those aren't those aren't what he's not using superhuman reflexes or speed or strength. It's pure perceptual skill. All he really needs to see is things like the angle of the foot hitting the ball, the initial trajectory and spin of the ball, and he groups that into what sports scientists call a chunk, which is like one signal that says immediately, ball's going here, there in the future, this is where you have to get to. So he's essentially seeing the future so he doesn't have to try to rely on reflexes the way that, that Ronald did, because that's actually we're way too slow to, to rely on our reflexes to, to execute skills as the game becomes very, very fast. So right. it's this kind of a, what's called anticipatory skill. Yeah. This ability to take data from bodies or the flights of balls and see what's coming before it happens is like one of the hallmarks of the difference between experts and novices. And, and this chunking of information, which is sort of grouped in our brain as, as experience. Yeah, yeah. And this, this, an, the initial chunking studies came actually in chess. So now it's been right. found ubiquitously across sports. But the initial studies were done in the 1940s. Um, and a series, a, a group of chess players of different ability levels were given boards. And then the boards were taken away. And they were asked to recreate them as best they could. And the grandmasters could recreate an entire board after seeing it for only three seconds. Right? That's an incredibly hard task. Um, and so the conclusion was that grandmaster chess players have photographic memories. And so people were given memory tests and... Uh, to screen them if they should be trained to be a chess player. And then two generations later, the studies were repeated. But this time there's a wrinkle added where the players were also given boards that would never quite occur in a game, like something was a little wrong. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, the grandmaster chess players were suddenly stripped of their supposed right, they were just memories. Yeah. Ordinary people. Turned out that they had learned how to chunk recurring groups of uh, pieces that allow them to quickly sort of take meaning from the situation the way that Cristiano Ronaldo does with body parts and flying balls, basically. Right. I just remember seeing the lights go off, and I think he, he takes a few steps, and he dives and yeah. heads the ball not only into the net, but into the corner of the yeah. net. Oh, yeah, like a, he, he like commits. It was a, I mean, like it was right? a goal. I mean, so it it's pretty clear that he does not need to see the ball after right. a certain point. To, to it, And, in fact, if he had to, he wouldn't be able to do it as well. And it's sort of – it's it, you get into this in the sports gene of this, this um, concept of hitting a baseball. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really make sense because if yeah. you look at the time to swing a bat versus the time – that the ball leaves the pitcher's hand there there's there's an there's an overlap there where yeah. where it's the ball in the air is quicker than the actual time to complete the baseball swing so i think hitting a cricket ball or a baseball um you you they have to know where it's going based on the what they see in the pitcher 
well before the ball has actually left the pitcher's hand. Yeah, and, and actually the way I got interested in I mean, a lot of the a lot of the sports gene was just sort of my own questions I had generated by either watching sports or, or competing in sports. And that one was I saw on TV a softball pitcher striking out baseball players. That was, was, Gen- that like, was Jenny Finch. Yeah, yeah. and I was kind of like, you know, do quick back of the envelope calculation. And I'm like, she, okay, she's throwing from 43 feet, but she's only throwing 60 miles an hour. Right. That transit time is like longer than a lot of they should be these able guys hit all the time. And the softball's bigger than the baseball. They yeah. should be able to crush this. Yeah. So I was kind of like, what's going on here? You know, and that's, that's sort of how the investigation started. And it turns out that, you know, because I was like, if they have reflexes fast enough to hit 97 mile per hour fastballs from 60 feet, why right. can't they? And, you know, it turns out they don't have reflexes fast enough to do that. Like major league hitters, when they're tested, their uh, simple reaction time is 200 milliseconds, a fifth of a second. That's the time it takes just to see that an object's in front of you for that information to cross the synapses to the back of your brain and for you to initiate muscular action, not to swing, just to initiate it. And that's half the total flight time of the pitch. So if you're actually relying on your reflexes, it's far too slow. And you know how we, we tell kids to, like, keep their eye on the ball? It's actually, like, you could turn out the lights in the stadium. They could close their eyes when the ball were halfway in. If it weren't psychologically upsetting to them, it would make no difference because they already have to have picked up the perceptual information. You know, the angle of the forearm of the pitcher, the rotation of their shoulder, the the flicker of the pitch, which is the flashing pattern that seems make as the ball spins. As soon as the ball's released, that chunk, just like with Cristiano Ronaldo picking up the ball as soon as it's kicked, they have to say, ball's going here or there, swing or don't swing. And that's... That's so, I mean, uh, this is in my notes for later on, but we might as well discuss this now or since we're on this concept of baseball pitchers and genes and sports a yeah. little bit. But it, it sort of brings us to this point of, you know, is there a sports gene? Yeah. Is, there, is there something that gives you an innate advantage at, at whatever the particular sport may be? But in baseball, it turns out it's eyesight. Yeah. And, and so I, I, to clarify the previous point, the reason that the softball pitchers strike out the baseball hitters is because all those cues that they've learned from practice, the rotation right. of the shoulder, the spin of the ball are changed. And so they're stripped of this, yeah. uh, you know, this, this anticipatory expertise. And so findings like that led to this conclusion in the field um, that for a long time scientists uh, summarized as it's software, not hardware, meaning that the skills needed to um, you know, hit major league pitching were downloaded completely via practice, nothing that you come to it with matters at all, right? It's not reflexes. It's all things you learn through practice. But it turns out we were kind of thinking about that wrong, right? So if you think about the computer analogy, your computer doesn't do anything without the right software. The hardware doesn't matter without the software. But once you've got the right software, suddenly the hardware matters a lot to how good a performance you get. And that sort of looks similar to uh, how it often works in sports where these hitters are useless without the right anticipatory skill they've gained through lots of practice. But once they have that, then things like visual acuity make a huge difference to the point where the average major league hitter has visual acuity of 2012, the average, which is, which for everyone listening, that's, that's insane. You know, some of them have like 2010 or 29. I was reading. That's right. And and the theoretical limit is thought to be like 28 more or less. And so this, you know, and, and 20, 2010 means that, uh, they can see from 20 feet away what a person with so-called perfect vision, you know, has to stand at 10 feet to Correct. see. So yeah. it's funny, Ted Williams uh, used to say, he was a good hunter, and he would say that he just like wanted to see ducks on the horizon, you know, more fervently than his hunting partners. But then when he got tested for a uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, military pilot's exam, it turned out he had 20-10 vision. Right. So that also probably helped. Both things, I'm sure he was very determined. Yeah. But <laughs> 
two two anecdotes that I think are cool on this topic is they've done a study where they where I guess they must have colored in the the stitches oh, yeah, of a baseball yeah, yeah, yeah. to make it all white. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't make a difference. You just see a, a blur of white coming at you anyways. Turns out it makes a huge difference. Yeah, huge difference. And especially on certain pitches. So like a, sl- a lot of s- sliders yeah, will, breaking look like, pitches, yeah. will look like a white um, you know, circle with a, with a red dot in the middle. Totally. And so pitches like that. You know, and, and the players don't know what that they know this. Right. Yes. That's right. That's why they this didn't know most, that they wouldn't be able to This is the most remarkable pitch. thing is that you, they, you take away the stitches and all of a sudden they can't hit it. And, and I think at the same token, the same study that they did, they, they colored in the stitches extra heavy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they were yeah. even better. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of, it's, you see the pitchers sort of rubbing the baseball. Maybe if they put some whiteout on their pants instead of this <laughs> tar and, and got might, rid of some of that. Might be a little too easy to get caught. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, Just but sort of make the stitches a little bit less prominent on the ball and all of a sudden the pitchers can't Yeah, can't like hit. rub them off a little bit. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it also other, you know, I think this also shows that things like pitching machines, right? They can be good for strengthening and practicing your form and that kind of stuff. But you're not lo- you're not learning the different patterns of the pitching and the body of the pitcher that you're going to have to face in the real life situation. That's right. That's right. I mean, in a pitching machine, right, you basically know where the ball is. There you probably could close your eyes from the start once you figure out where exactly to to swing. And so things in like some of these early studies were done in Australia. And so cricket teams kind of started moving away from bowling machines, you know, toward, right, toward right. Using a more live so all those bowling. dads that are telling their kids to go to the, the batting cages, you're not actually getting much out of that. You've got to actually yeah. be, be, be hitting from a human being. Yeah. I mean, when you're young, it may be good for strengthening or yeah. practicing some form, but it's not developing the most critical skills. Right. The second anecdote that I was going to say is this, this concept, I think it was with the LA Dodgers of this, they they had they had I guess at that point they had this is in the I think it was in the seventies or eighties when they recognized this pattern of visual acuity and its importance for baseball players. But the guy predicting Mike Piazza, yeah, before he's even played in a major league game, just based on his eyesight. Yeah, yeah, they were uh, sort of doing testing, and this this guy one of, one of the guys who was involved in that work, uh, Daniel Laby, he now does like testing for a lot of teams, um, you know, major league teams like every year basically, uh, and. What they were finding was basically it was when Tommy Lasorda was the manager of the Dodgers and they uh, wanted some help deciding like who to draft or who to bring up from the minors. Right. And um, this series of visual tests predicted both Eric Karros and Mike Piazza. And Mike Piazza was a really late. He was drafted like as a favor to a family friend of the Lasordas. And these visual <laughs> yeah. acuity tests predicted yeah. that these were the guys, you know, Eric. He Harris had like 2010 vision or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and really good dynamic visual acuity, which is like picking out moving objects and right. things like that. And so I, I think it was some of that work that actually caused other teams to start wanting some of this, this yeah. kind of testing too. And, and I mean, in baseball, they go super deep in terms of their picks. Like there's like a 30-round yeah. oh, yeah. draft, you know. Right. Like we could get drafted right now, you know. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, this guy, this guy sort of says, the, the coach says, I want you to tell me who's going to be successful. And this guy, without even seeing the players or yeah. them having played a single game, he says, Mike Piazza. Yeah. Yeah. And he picks him out and he's one, you know, but, yeah, arguably like the best <laughs> the value best. of a draft pick, like ever in baseball. Right. Yeah. Turns he was out to be arguably su- the, super, super late. And right. then, uh, and probably then, would have gone undrafted if he didn't have a family connection. Right. And turns and out just to be based arguably on the his, best hitting catcher. Yeah. Ever. Hitting catcher of all time. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I've, I, yeah, you can probably tell I'm, I've read your books and I think they're awesome. I know um, you might remember them like better than I do now. <laughs> I don't know about that, but personally, I think I'm really intrigued and interested in a lot of the stuff that you write on. And I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are, are interested in, 
um, you know, sports medicine and sports science and not only athlete development, but personal development with their careers and so on. So, so I'm just interested that we're going to get to talk about those different things and focus on that today. So as an ex-athlete and now, you know, I'm a sports medicine physician and a surgeon and more recently a parent, I think that some of the stuff that you base your books around is very interesting and, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're going to get to explore it more today. So some of the things I, I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about what makes a good athlete. And then I want to talk to you about what makes a good physician or a surgeon or a sports medicine doctor, because after all, this is a sports medicine podcast. Um, and there's a ton of interesting stuff that you present in range, a lot of which is fairly counterintuitive to what most of us think in terms of getting away, away from this concept of early focus specialization, which has gained a huge amount of momentum recently. Because I think a lot of people listen to this podcast, whether it's parents, coaches, sports psychologists, whoever it may be, they want to know the answers to some of these questions, or at least gain some clarity about the various concepts. Or I, I don't, I don't even know if you can call them a concept, but these ideas we have about athlete development and and just personal development. Anyways, I'm generally genuinely interested and intrigued by a lot of the stuff that you write about. So it's truly a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Maybe just to begin with, give us give us a quick minute intro on yourself and what you've done. I, I would just based on, you know, knowing a little bit about you, I would say that you sort of embrace this concept of range, having a very broad and diverse background yourself. And I know mm. you're you've you, you know, you've got a fairly accomplished upbringing with regard to sports and academics as well. Uh, yeah, me, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't attempt proactively to embrace the concept of range. Like when I was like 16 years old, I was sure I was going to the Air Force Academy and I was going to be a test pilot, an astronaut. And I've got, I think I've gotten like linearly less goal directed, you know, yeah. to the point where now I actually have no idea what I'm going to be doing next. But um, yeah, I played football, basketball, baseball in high school, even though I'm a small guy, went on to run track in college or I was an 800 meter runner. Um, and you were awesome. Well, I went on from being a a crappy walk on to, to ending yeah. as a university record holder. Um, I want I want to get to this later on, but this is like this concept of trainability. Yeah, and it turns out that you were high on that yeah. scale. You were very trainable. It's interesting to know now because I still see that. You know, now I just work out for. Uh, I would call what I do now jogging, not running anymore, baby. Yeah. But but I, I do it for health, you know, and to be outside and things like that. And I still notice that that I get in and out of shape like very very quickly. Yeah. Um, and that's a good thing. Oh yeah. You know, so like I had a, since I had a kid recently, I had like a, the life insurance exam coming up. So I was like, all right, I know exactly when I have to start training to, to, right. to get the best premiums on right. my, my life insurance here. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I, I went to, to college thinking I was going to study like political science, ended up studying geology and astronomy, started grad school, uh, in, in geology. I was like living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided for sure I wanted to, to become a writer, particularly actually, I mean, this relates to, to sports medicine. Um, I had a training partner and friend, you know, first in his family of Jamaican immigrants who's going to go to college. One of the top ranked 800 meter runners his age in the country dropped dead at the end of a mile race, hypertrophic oh, cardiomyopathy, wow. yeah. which is, you know, the most common cause of when you hear of young athletes dropping dead. And I very specifically wanted to go uh, write about sudden cardiac death in athletes for, you know, people who weren't like me buying Scientific American or whatever with their disposable income. And so I sort of plotted my... My way to do that, start as an overnight crime reporter uh, at the New York Daily News, right? Nothing happy that's going in the New York Daily News happens to be midnight and 10 a.m. So it's quite a difference from being <laughs> right. a science grad student. Uh, then worked at a startup, eventually got to Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker. And it turned out that my science background and crime reporting experience kind of like shot me past my peers there. Like this stuff that was, I was sort of very ordinary as a scientist. And then suddenly it's extraordinary when you're a sports magazine and became the science writer there. Uh, 
my, my friend's death is what got me interested in genetics, wrote the sports gene, and then, then disembarked to do uh, investigative work at ProPublica uh, and, and left that to finish range, and, and that brings me to today. You wrote for Sports Illustrated for a period of time yeah. as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was investigative in science <coughs> there, but also did some normal sports stuff and Olympic sports. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. Awesome. So, I mean, in preparation for our talk today, I've reread The Sports Gene. Uh, I've read your newest book, Range, which is the subtitle is Why Generalists Triumph in the Specialized World, which I think is a little bit of an extension of, of The Sports Gene. I've also reread Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Now, I take it, and I know that you've met Malcolm before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, do you want to do you want to just tell us about that? Oh, sure. I mean, the first time I met him, actually, it <laughs> was a very nervous time for me. We we were invited after the sports gene, as as Malcolm introduced me recently on a panel. He said we were supposed to introduce each other on this panel recently, and he goes, "This is David Epstein, who devoted several pages of his first book to attacking my work." And I'm like, <laughs> "Thanks for that introduction." Right. <laughs> um, but but it's true. Uh, I was sort of attacking some of the science underlying the the 10,000 hour rule and how it was portrayed. Um, But originally, we first met and we were invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which is co-founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets, and to debate because I had critiqued the 10,000 hour rule. And, you know, he's really clever and I didn't want to get like totally embarrassed on stage. So I was like prepping. Um, I'm sure I was nervous for him and he was not nervous for me. I'm sure it was the dynamic. (laughs) But right. um, and he'd written about the importance of early specialization, so I knew he had to argue for that. So I went looking at um, the studies. Like I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated at the time. And I said, well, if that's true, then we should see that elite athletes have a head start in, in so-called deliberate practice. And in fact, what scientists see is that athletes who go on to become elite in most sports typically have what they call a sampling period, where they do kind of a variety of physical activities. Sometimes that's other sports. Sometimes it's martial arts, dancing, you know, tumbling, gymnastics, they learn about, they get these broad general skills, they learn about their interests and abilities, and they actually delay specializing on just one thing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so when I, when I talked about that, after when we were coming off the stage, he sort of said, you know what you got me on was like that, that doesn't really comport exactly with my hypothesis. And we became, he invited me to run the next day. He's like a borderline world-class yeah. miler for his age group. Um, yeah, closet, very good athlete. Yeah, yeah. And so he gave me the business on his, like, the stair workouts. So then I had to start getting in shape again. And uh, <laughs> we started talking about our own time and calling it the Roger versus Tiger problem um, because of the different sort of development tracks of, of Tiger Woods and Roger Federer. And I sort of lodged in the back of my head uh, and became the analogy that I start, that sure. I start range with about sports specialization. So let's talk about that because... It, I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't read Outliers, you, you should. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. Um, but the author is Malcolm Gladwell. He's a Canadian guy, and he constructs a fairly compelling argument as to, you know, the promises of hard work and the so-called 10,000-hour rule, which I believe stems from the work of Anders Ericsson down in, mm-hmm. down in Florida, and his co- concept of deliberate practice, mm-hmm. which, which I think we should talk a little bit, a little bit uh, more about now maybe. So... Basically, his argument is 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 about this 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 concept of hard work, and if you if you dedicate ten thousand hours of deliberate practice to doing anything really, you can become an expert. Now, I I say expert. I don't know what that means. Does it does it? You can become a professional in your sport. You can become very good. You can compete at a level better than the average person. Mm-hmm. What do what do you get from doing this for ten thousand hours? Yeah, that's a good question. And and Anders Ericsson, I would say, would. Um, he doesn't like that 10,000 hour rule, uh, moniker in, in fairness. Um, but in outliers, Malcolm calls it the sort of the magic, 
the magic number to, to expertise. And it originally stems from a study of 30 violinists who were in a world-class music academy. Right. The top 10 of whom had practiced, on average, well, supposedly, we can talk about the how the data collection worked, but um, on average, 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, right? That's not just playing. That's like error correction focused coached technical practice uh, by the age of 20 those are the ones who might be be good enough to go on to become international soloists and then there was this extrapolation um you know by erickson and others that it looked like about a similar amount of time or 10 years that it would take also athletes and and you know other types of musicians and people in other fields to go on to become elite professionals basically um oh that's actually not the case and when i was looking at studies of athletes um, sometimes it takes 10 years, right? Because partly there's just like, like there's a life trajectory of when a kid starts playing right. and like when they go to college. But usually it was from like between three and 4,000 to 6,000 hours when an athlete hit, hit a league. Yeah. It was less than 10,000. And I think you get into this in range a little bit more where you show that there's a huge range, I guess, to this 10,000 yeah. hours. You use the example of athletes. And I think there was one example where there's the Australian netball player who, who only had to do it for 600 hours. Yeah. And she was the best netball player in Australia, whereas there were soccer players who had been 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 hours. So it didn't really apply to to everyone. No, no, in fact, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, in fact, that that range, I think some uh, sports scientists have kind of seized on that. So to to give a sense of the problem, in the original 10,000 hour study, um, there was no measure of variance reported in the original study, which is a big problem. So this 10,000 hour average um, so, so let, let's look at like chess, for example, where you have to learn chunks, right? Yeah. Is it takes 11,053 hours on average to reach international master status. That's one down. <laughs> so they've really got it. Right. They've really got it down. And that, and that's, so the 10,000 hours would be low for, for sure. chess, right? Yeah. Where it'd be high in most sports. And, uh, but some people have made it in 3000 hours. And some people ended a study at 25,000 and still hadn't made So you're it. talking about chess now, just chess, some people right. make it to that level at 3,000. Some right. people by 25,000 have not right. made it. Right. And chess is a good objective measure because there's like a point system, you know. Exactly. Way, yeah. Um, and so you can track it really objectively. And so the 11,053 hour average doesn't tell you anything about the real variety of mm-hmm. human skill acquisition. And that's how it looks in almost everything. So there was, so again, in the original 10,000 hour study, no measure of variance reported. But it turns out that there was a lot of high variance, right? Some people were over 10,000, some were under. And that original study was done in 1993. I think it was in 2014 when measures of variance were finally first reported for it. And they actually showed that the original conclusions of the study could not have been true. So one of the original conclusions of the study was that there was complete correspondence between level of practice and level of skill. Got it. And in fact, when they published the measures of variance, it showed that there had to be at least a lower level player who had accumulated more practice than someone who was at the highest level. Right. Um, and in fact, when the study was replicated recently, the original 10,000 hour study with a bigger sample and blinded, there was someone from the lowest level violinists who had practiced more than someone from the, so the, the so-called t- who would go on to become teachers. I, I don't yeah. think that's a derogatory thing to say, but anyway, had practiced more than someone who reached like the, that international right. soloist potential. So level. that's, that's a little bit frustrating or, or, I don't know if that's the right word, but I, th- I, I pulled that from that book, that anecdote of this, this music school where there was no coincidence. And I sometimes I, I tell this to people or, you know, if, if you're trying to illustrate the point of hard work, what is written in, in 10,000 hours or sorry, in outliers, 
with this concept of this deliberate practice of 10,000 hours, he Gladwell sort of goes on and says that there's no coincidence. There's no one that's at the, I think there's three levels. You're yeah. either super elite, elite, or, you know, good or average, let's call them the lowest. There was no one in the super elite level that had practiced at a lower number of hours. And there was no one at the average level who had practiced at it, put in the hours of a super elite player. That's right. But you're saying that that is has been proven incorrect, maybe. Th- that's incorrect, yeah. Because and again, that that's what it looked like because they only reported the averages, right? Right. And so, but and, but within that, there was a huge variance. That's so, right. And when they eventually published their own variance, it showed that their own conclusion could not have been right. And and this more rigorous replication that was just published last month showed that it wasn't even close. Like there were, I think, people in the. You know, there was someone who was over 11,000 hours in the lowest level and someone at 4,000 hours who was in the highest level. Right. right? And so it's if, if you leave out measures of variance, like by nature, you make it look like there are these rules. Because yeah, you're, you're just, just taking, taking the average, average for every person. That's right. And right. So you can have an 11,053 hour, you know, rule for chess like we talked about, but it doesn't really tell you anything. Like literally nobody did 11,053 hours, right? It's just the right. average of these incredible disparate differences. And I sure. think one of the messages is that one, it's actually important to find the areas where you learn faster. Um, and that also people have this incredible diversity of paths. And so one of the ways that UK sport, which, you know, the UK was like pretty mediocre at the Olympics for decades. And then in the last couple, they got really good. And one of their main strategies was when they realized people actually come through all these different paths instead of just the sort of 10,000 hours path, they just tried to open up their pipeline so that people could come in via more different ways and more different backgrounds. And like the netball player you talked about where she had played other sports, right? right? And that allowed, and and it looks like if you play, especially in so-called invasion sports where you're like, you know, volleyball, soccer, where you're, you have to judge like bodies and, and balls and people trying to get past you or get objects past you. It looks like if you play multiple then there's an advantage for learning any subsequent one for the rest of your life. Like you'll learn it quicker, a little bit like it seems like there's a little bit of an advantage for kids who grow up bilingual, where they're a little bit, sometimes they're a little bit delayed in certain speaking skills, but then they have an advantage for learning a third language going forward. And that's, there's some cool studies where scientists actually make up a grammar and a made up language and see if they can, they have a little advantage for picking it up without being told the rules kind of seems sort of similar to sports. Right. So you know, getting back to this, I've I've reread these books in fairly in a fairly short period of time leading up to this, basically in the last week or so. And I think if I had to summarize my overall thoughts on everything presented, it would be confusion, Can or it, it, you know, maybe good confusion in yeah. that I now have more of an appreciation and like what you say in your book range. I don't want to be stuck in this silo of of focusing on something that I'm studying, and I, it's actually one of the points that I want to get to of how. It's detrimental to be caught in this super specialized world or view of something, which can lead to catastrophic failure. Um, but it's a good confusion in that, you know, I, I, I sort of know about this 10,000 hours and some of the stuff that you talk about with, with the sports gene and in range of the, the huge variance that leads to this. And, and there's a lot of other factors going into this, this overall concept. That's right. And, and, and I don't think that, I think that confusion is good. First of all, that's like an intellectually you know, humble thing for you to say. And I'm sure like you don't need to have a podcast. So I'm sure you're like a very curious and kind of intellectually somewhat humble person. Anyway, you wouldn't be doing stuff like this, right? Cause you're trying to broaden yourself, but maybe these, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but 
these questions, right? It's like sometimes I get more confused too. Like the two books, if I had to say, one of the questions was what's the balance of nature and nurture in different sports skills? Right. The other one is how broad or specialized to be? And those questions are impossible to answer perfectly or there wouldn't right. be so many people studying them, right? I'm looking at my notes. I'm like, the next thing is I want you to give us a precise answer to this early sports specialization. Yeah, but, right. I wouldn't be writing these books if I could do that, <laughs> right? It would have been done already. One but page, yeah. My, my hope is just that these these questions are important to a large number of people and usually only discussed with intuition. And so my goal is the best I, I think I can accomplish is to... Um, you know, bring some research and some stories to it and make those discussions more interesting and more productive, basically. So anyways, th that's that's exactly it. And that brings us to this. I'm confused about mm -hmm. this whole topic. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this, they want to try and I don't think we can I don't think we can summarize this or give it exactly as to what you're saying in this book. I don't think we can give an exact answer to this this notion of how do you produce an athlete? Mm -hmm. But this is something that I want to I want to talk about. Uh, because I'm sure lots of coaches and parents are listening and interested by this in terms of what the, you know, again, there's not a single idea or this is exactly, if you want your kid to be a good golfer, this is what he has to do. Mm -hmm. do. But I want to sort of get into some of the ideas and um, topics that you you approach in this book. Um, maybe to start in this, there's been this this prevalent notion of early sports specialization that seems to be a trend in youth sports these days mm -hmm. uh, with this year-round single sport participation, which a lot of the research shows isn't the best approach to, in fact, developing an athlete. Yeah, at least early on. And I mean, this was sort of hammered home to me when I lived, previous to this, I lived in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. And there was a U7 travel soccer team that met like at a park near me. And I, I'm not sure there's a human being on earth who thinks that six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people <laughs> that they have to travel right? right so there's all these at, other at the age of seven that's right that's right so there's all these other interests going on here but it but it shows that like people really think that you need to specialize that early and and i think a lot of people try to set up systems that actually force people to specialize whether it's the best or not but um you know we're really seeing this trend especially in the u.s of accelerating uh, early youth specialization and that that causes a couple of issues the first one is it exacerbates something called the relative age effect which is uh, the earlier you push selection the more you see coaches just picking kids based on their birthdays essentially so when kids are seven if they're being selected for a traveling team the kids born say in January early in the selection year are a lot older than the kids born in November and December and when you're seven the motor development difference of 10 or 11 months is a huge difference. And so the coaches will just say, oh, these kids are more talented. And then if you look at the rosters, they've ended up picking all the kids born in January and February and Which March. is what Gladwell sort of bases his right. outliers about at the start with the hockey players That's in right. the uh, Western Hockey League in Canada. That's right. And one of the interesting things is I looked at the data in the NHL and it disappears in the NHL, the relative age effect, right? So you break up the year, um, you know, into, into three months, basically, um, into quartiles. And in the NHL, it's almost even, or even the third quartile has, is the most represented. So that tells you that up to the highest level, one level below the highest level, basically, you're getting this exacerbated selection for guys who were just like born early in the year. So you selected them at seven, and then it's a ripple effect all the way down. But at the top level, they're not quite making it. So you're probably deselecting a bunch of people early on who you really would want to keep in the pipeline. You're just deselecting them because they aren't but as physically developed. By the same token, those people must make it back in at some point. Yeah, so either that or they have a much higher transference rate. Like once they've gotten to, it could be that they are, the reason they were able to survive to, you know, the next highest level is because they were that good or whatever right. it is. And some of the theory is that because they're smaller, they have to develop other strategies for playing, right? They can't just be physically dominant. So I think sometimes 
for some people, the relative age effect gives them an advantage until it doesn't, which is that they, they get more opportunities to play. They're selected for the teams. But if they're physically dominant, they don't have to develop some of the other skills that right. other players do. And so my guess is that it's actually there's probably just like a the the sort of relatively younger kids who've made it to that level one below the top level are a lot more likely to then make the top level basically sure. because either they've been better or they've had to develop other strategies or whatever the case is right so birth 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 date being born earlier in the year is actually not it's a good strategy for short-term goals yeah, but maybe in the long the term it's not it's not a long-term strategy yeah and yeah. i think that goes hand in hand with what you talk about in range versus which is early development and early goals versus long-term development and goals. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is, you know, if it weren't such an ugly subtitle, like I think one of the themes of range to me that I found in some ways deeply counterintuitive before I got into this stuff was sometimes the things that you can do to cause the most rapid short-term apparent progress can actually undermine long-term development. It's not always the case, right? but, but, so this is a massive concept here yeah. I think that people need to understand is is in the long run, early sports specialization is maybe not the best bet. And I know in the sports gene, you talk about this overlap where kids that are specializing from an early age versus kids that are in the sampling period where they're doing a bunch of everything, the, the, the curves on the graph intersect and then surpass one another, go in the opposite directions at around the age of, I think it was about 15. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the typical model, right, we all think of the, the Tiger Woods model, right, gets a putter when he's seven months old, by yeah. two he's on national television, three saying I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas. You know, that's probably the most impactful modern development story in anything, right? It's been like mm-hmm. extrapolated to everything in the world in like oh, at wow. least a half dozen bestsellers, probably more. Um, but it turns out the norm is actually the Roger Federer path where he played right. wide variety. He played about a dozen sports, you know, handball, volleyball, swimming, wrestling, skiing, skateboarding, racquetball, all this stuff and delayed specialization. And that turns out to be the norm. You know, there's a tremendous individual variation, uh, but that turns out to be the norm, but we never really hear that, that story. Right. right. Um, and so I think that's kind of, kind of problematic because that's what the science says is, is typical, but we're making it harder and harder for people to do that. And it doesn't mean, someone shouldn't be exposed to the sport that they're right. Exposure is great. It's just a question of, is that the only thing they're doing as opposed to kind of developing this broader, broader toolbox and learning, you know, for Federer, one of the things was keeping multiple sports going and eventually realizing which you're the best at, right? He was ended up choosing between soccer and right. and tennis at the end. So and I have, uh, there's a million questions going, just running through my brain. Well, I have right a question now. for you now too, because now sure. there's being renewed emphasis, right? ESPN just had this series about like how fragile NBA players are coming in because they're not like as robust. And, and right. I'm curious if you're seeing, you know, I remember talking to uh, Mark Philippon, who, yeah, who made yeah. a lot of your audience. Cause I, I, wrote I, a, I, I actually, I've, I spent time with Mark in during residency. Oh, he's okay. a, he's a French Canadian guy and he came to the university of Toronto to do a, um, a talk on, on a hip arthroscopy, very good oh. hip arthroscopist. And that's what I do as well. Um, so I spent time with him during residency, but he's a, I'm Canadian and he's Canadian. So we, we stood in the OR for a couple of days, just basically doing hip arthroscopy and talking about hockey players. Oh, great. So I, I contacted him because when I was at sports illustrated, I was writing an article about labral tears in butterfly style hockey goaltenders. Yeah. Huge epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I didn't realize at the time was he started telling me that like, we're seeing this in Right, Patrick Waugh, who arguably the greatest butterfly-style yep. goaltender, like he didn't even try it until he was a pro already. 
Um, but I guess now kids are learning it at a really young age. And yeah. he was telling me, you know, that he's seeing young people that he thinks are going to need like hip replacements in their 20s or 30s. For sure. It's crazy. You know, and then yeah. maybe higher risk of arthritis, I think he said. And, and I like think that. part of that is this is this year round participation where if you want to be if you want to play junior A hockey now, you know, there's no there's no off season. You know, when I grew up, you would play you would start playing hockey and 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 you know preseason camps would start around the end of august and september but during the summer i would play you know rugby and baseball and soccer and do everything but now these kids are just it's hockey all year round and i think when you when you look at a problem like hip pathology in, in goalies their hips aren't given a break yeah you know there's no day off they're just and they, these 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 overuse problems in sports medicine that we're starting to see much more of is sort of a, a result of this year round participation in single sports. Now I'm curious to hear your thoughts because one of the interesting things or two things. So when I looked at Niru Jayanti, I don't know if you know him, but he did this four year longitudinal study of um, youth athletes looking at what was the best predictor of basically sort of an adult style overuse injury, you know, something you wouldn't normally see in a, in a kid, something that might affect their career or life going forward. And the main predictor was that they were specialized. It was like nine or more months a year with only one sport and not other sports. But it also looked like there was some protective effect of other sports that wasn't necessarily just constrained to time, right? So it wasn't necessarily that you had to do less sports overall. It was like it seemed to be some protective effect of just diversifying your sports. And I, I spent some time talking to the physiologist for Cirque du Soleil. You know, they have a bunch of ex-Olympic right. athletes. And looking at this work, they decided to implement this program where they would have their performers learn the basics of a few other performers' uh, disciplines, not because they were going to perform them, but to see if it would have effects on their creativity and injury rates and things like that. And they track their injury rates next to Canadian gymnastics because we're getting a lot of Canada in, which is good, right? Yeah. I think Cirque du Soleil is <laughs> Canadian company. And they, they, he told me that it dropped their injury rates by like almost a third just having their performers sort of diversify the stuff they were doing. So I think we can come up with a lot of theories of why that's true. I, I don't, you know, some things that make sense to me, but may not be true, but it seems like there might be some actual protective effect from diversifying your sports. Even if you end up playing more sports overall, I'm kind of curious to hear your, your take on that and what you see. Yeah, I think so. I think it, one of the things that's coming out in the literature now has to do with injury patterns. And we're seeing these injuries now become more prevalent uh, in youth athletes and the result is they result from this early specialization and doing the same activity whether it's throwing a baseball or being in the butterfly stance as a goalie it's it's resulting in these injury patterns emerging that are obviously detrimental to the overall production of athletes yeah it's turning into like a sort of a survival of the fittest i know a lot of sports are about that but but you know, this is, this is a problem that's emerging as a result of this concept. And, and what do you think about, so now probably like a third of major league baseball pitchers, um, have had Tommy John surgery, uh, and at the pro level, they're pitching less than they ever have. Right. Right. And I remember seeing a presentation by Struan Coleman, who was, or maybe still is a surgeon who worked with the Mets a lot. And yeah. Struan's a, uh, he's a hip arthroscopist at HSS in New York. And, and I remember him saying that he thought that it was these guys pitching too much when they were younger that was setting up like micro tears in their ligament that was making them more fragile when they got right got to the pro level. I don't know if there's been emerging evidence of that, but it is interesting that there are a lot more, you know, that that injury is an epidemic, even though the pitchers are pitching less than they used to in the past. Right. At the I, pro mean, level. I mean, Tommy John surgery is becoming, you know, ubiquitous among baseball pitchers. They've all had, well, a lot of them have had Tommy John surgery and it's, and it's a massive problem that wasn't really a problem 
you know, in the eighties yeah. and nineties, even though Tommy John was a pitcher in the, yeah. in the eighties, you know? And I think after your first one, there's a great recovery rate, right? But if you have two, it's, oh, yeah, it's, it's not it's, so good. No, so if you get your end. first one as a teenager, I had, I had a cousin who was throwing like 90 at age 16. And what that should mean is like, just don't ruin him and let him grow up. And exactly. Get and instead what it meant was every travel team had to come see him in person with a radar gun. And so he had his first Tommy John at 17, right? Yeah. And if you get it out of the way, then it's not a good I don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't think it, that's a good thing, I, yeah. would, I would say overall. Anyway, so I th- I'm sure a lot of parents and coaches are asking this, but if we had to sort of summarize your data from the sports gene in terms of what's the best way to develop an athlete, what are, what are some of these concepts of early sampling periods and, and so on? Let's just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so for the first thing, I think to, to start even a little bit before that is that Right. The Tiger Woods model worked for Tiger Woods. And I actually do think there are arguments. I want to, I want to get to the Tiger Woods and the Roger Federer thing. And I want to talk, that's going to bring us to this difference between kind and unkind or wicked, wicked environments. But, but, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on that, but sorry, I don't want to interrupt. No, no, I I just want to say like, so the, um, but I think it's, I think it's important for parents to know that I think we tell the Tiger and like the Mozart story, probably the second most impactful one, a little bit wrong in that Tiger Woods' father did give him a putter at seven months old, but he wasn't—he was just giving it to him as a toy. He wasn't trying to turn him into a golfer. In fact, in 2000, Tiger said, my father never once asked me to play golf. It was always me asking him to play. It's the child's uh, desire to play, not the parents. It matters. Mozart, right, his father is sort of seems as sim- seen as similar to Tiger's father, but in fact, I went through, like, lots of old letters about his life, and you can see things, like in one example— where a musician is coming over to play with his father and a group of adults, and little Mozart comes in and is like, I want to play the second violin part. And his dad is like, go away. You haven't had any. Yeah. Nobody's taught you how to play the violin. You obviously can't play the violin. And Mozart starts crying. And so this guy writing the letter takes him in the other room and is like, I'll play with him just so he stops crying. And then they hear the second violin part coming from the other room. And so the adults come in and are like, (laughs) what's going on? And so then they watch him playing, and his dad's like stunned. And I remember the letter says verbatim, he says, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist he could also play the first violin part. And so then he does that with made up fingering, right? Must Nobody even nice. learned it. And so in these cases, and classical music and golf are sort of specific types of activities that, that we'll talk about. But um, in both cases, the father was responding to this very unusual display of prowess by uh, and, and interest by the child as opposed to manufacturing it. And so I think no matter what, even if you do want the next Mozart or Tiger, part of your strategy should be actually exposing the kid broadly and seeing if something lights their fire like that. Right. Because this turns out to be kind of activity specific when you see kids like this. It isn't that they're just like interested in anything you throw at them. Um, And so the model that I sort of think of, because I have a kid now, you know, who probably will want to play sports. Thanks. And to to you too, you have a slightly older. Right. um, Yeah. And, uh, so th- I only wrote about this in like a footnote basically in range and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of slapping myself for that and feel like I should maybe when I write an afterward, I'll add more to it. But it's this, this army program called talent based branching. I know that sounds bad. I'm saying my parenting, I'm going to take an influence from an army program, but <laughs> yeah. talent based branching was they realized that they were kind of hemorrhaging. The army was hemorrhaging. It's like most, the people that it had deemed as the highest potential future officers and they realized they had a problem with this sort of upper out structure where they'd say, like, you go in this career track and get upper out. Um, and they were losing people. First, they tried to throw money at them to stay. And the people who were going to stay took it. People were going to leave, left anyway. It was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. Didn't change retention at all. 
Then they started programs like one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, go up or out, they say, we're pairing you with a coach. Try this one career track and see how it fits you. Reflect on it with your coach, then this other and this other, and then these two others. And you'll know better what your colleagues do, what options are there, and we'll triangulate a better fit for you or better match quality. It's a term economists use for a degree right. of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work they do. turns out to be hugely important for their sense of fulfillment, their persistence. As we say, when you get fit, it looks like grit. People will work harder and persist yes, more yeah. if they get in the right fit. And I kind of view my role as a parent with respect to sports, but also with respect to other things, as like the coach in that talent-based branching process, where I can't expose the kid to an infinite number of things, but I can broaden the menu of things they're exposed to and help them get the most amount of signal from each of those activities of like, what do they like and what are they good at? And so that's sort of how I, I'm... That's like the analogy I'm using for parenting. And so in sports, I'm going to try to expose them to a broad array uh, of sports, see what sort of captures their interest, try to try to keep that diversification going early. And that doesn't just mean multiple sports, right? The 10,000 hour stuff is based on deliberate practice, highly structured coaching feedback, like every time you do something. But it's clear that the athletes who rise to the top also have a lot of, they spend a lot of their early time in this unstructured play where yes. they're sort of improvising or like some sports... I think soccer is one of the becoming one of the most like early specialization sports sure. in the U.S. But then you go to Brazil, for example, and you know who obviously does better than in the U.S. in soccer, yeah. in men's soccer anyway. Um, and women's soccer, I think, is a different story that we can talk about if you want yeah. to. But um, in men's soccer, and so you go there and you see the kids aren't even playing soccer; they're playing futsal, right? Which is this small ball stays on the ground and one day they're playing on cobblestones the next day they're playing like over the net on a tennis court and the next day they're playing on sand and so it's it's the same sport sort of but they're really right. incredibly diversifying what they're doing so i think there are ways to diversify within a sport uh that some sure. places like the french national pipeline so let's are, are let's let's talk about this concept of soccer because it's a huge one I, I i live in frisco in texas and we've got the soccer hall of fame there mm. and literally acres and acres and acres of soccer fields and just a huge number of early soccer players mm -hmm. in, in this area there's it just seems like a hot spot for for development of soccer players but there's a there, there's a there's a few pages that are dedicated specifically to soccer in in book and in, in, in your book range so page 286 i've just got this in my notes here this is this is what it says that it's just that when someone actually takes the time to study how breakthroughs occur or how the players who grew up to fill Germany's 2014 World Cup winning team develop, these players performed less organized practice, but greater proportions of playing activities. Yeah, I mean, so this was a study, by the way, so after, uh, after the, when I added an afterword to the sports gene, which was the first time I talked a little bit about this specialization stuff, because this was after I'd had the debate with Gladwell, and so I decided to use some of that for the afterword. Right. Um, the an overwhelming response I got uh, you know, from like people who follow me on Twitter abroad and stuff was like, maybe in your stupid American sports, you don't have to specialize, but in, you know, in football and world football, like you have to, it's not even a question. And so right <laughs> after that, fortunately, you know, Germany had just won the world cup. And right after that, a study came out talking about how those players were developed compared to lower level players in Germany. And what it found was that they were less specialized early on. They were definitely playing soccer, but more of the they were doing like less formal lessons, more unstructured activities. Uh, they were dabbling in more other sports, sometimes formally, sometimes informally. And not until the age of 22 did the national team players surpass the very good amateur league players 
in how in what proportion of their practice was this highly structured play right. as opposed to unstructured and so it's sort of like titrated down over time they started very high and unstructured and dabbling in other sports and again they didn't have to be on teams it was just like doing other physical activities and then over time those sports would disappear slowly and and some of the unstructured play would become structured but it happened very slowly right and it's it's funny like one of the one of the things based on this german team of how unstructured they are it, it's it's sort of like a, a play on words but France is restructuring their development system yeah. to make it more unstructured. Yeah, and they actually to produce more high quality soccer players. Yeah, and you can't change a development system overnight. So they actually started that a few decades ago. Where right. now, and obviously France has, has done quite well. Um, and again, we're all talking about the the men's side because I think the women's side is a yeah. We'll bit talk about the women's side um, in a sec. And I, uh, so in France, a and Tom Ferry, who who now runs this thing called Project Play for the Aspen Institute that's, like, focused on uh-huh. um, uh, youth sports, has done some good stuff on this. Where So in France, a, you know, a, a youth player will probably play about half as many organized games as an American youth player of the same age. And they have this saying, one of the guys, Ludovic de Bru, who helped create the French system, uh, says there's no remote control, meaning, like, Early on, the coaches should not be micromanaging the players. They have like a 15-minute window where they're allowed to talk, basically, to the players. And the challenges are varied up. You know, they might be playing on a different size pitch one day or facing different kinds of problems. So there, they're giving them early exposure, but they're trying to diversify within the sport the types of problems they're facing, the types of movements they're doing, setting them up in an environment with, where there's the challenges are changing, but it's unstructured, so they have to kind of navigate them themselves. Trying to recreate this wicked environment. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, which again, we can, we can define yeah. more if we want to, but I think it's sort of telling that the countries that are doing better are sort of, you know, even though they're getting kids in the pipeline early, they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, embrace this sort of movement diversity because the sport diversity, I think is very much just a, I don't think it matters if you put on a basketball Jersey when you're a soccer player, it's like a proxy for the diversity of, of challenges sure. you're facing and, and movements that you're doing. Steve, Steve Nash. Now, you know, I was talking to him recently, there was a. Because uh, he didn't, he like literally did not play a basketball game until he was 13 years old. Played yeah. a bunch of other sports. I actually lived with a guy in uh, who was from BC because Steve's from 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 uh, BC. I think he's from North Vancouver, who played high school basketball against him. And they would dedicate. He told me they would dedicate two players of the five just to stay on Steve Nash and would still be just get absolutely crushed by him. I mean, you know, he's one of the most two-time NBA MVP. Right. That's and, and you're like, telling us that he didn't touch a basketball until he was 15. 13. Well, well 13. didn't play organized basketball. I suppose he might have touched a basketball, but yeah. He, he told me he did not, he, he didn't own a basketball and didn't play any basketball until he was 13. Yeah, that, that's incredible. But he played a bunch of other sports. And I like him as an example because, you know, he's like taller than the average person, but he's short no, for he's an not, NBA yeah, player. He's, he's, and he's, he's skinny about 16, and all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And he recently, there was an HBO Real Sports recently looking at Norwegian sports development. This is a cool program. Um, and I think it didn't get enough kind of, Traction yeah. where Norway at the last Winter Olympics they had like arguably the greatest national performance in Olympics ever. Like they, it's a tiny country and they like exploded the Winter Olympics. And so HBO Real Sports went to look there and they basically got rid of, you know, structured competition before age twelve and specialization and all this stuff. And so it's an amazing look at it. And Steve saw that and we were corresponding about it. And he was saying, you know, he's exploring starting a sports academy that will have people diversifying through like age 12 or 13 and 14. And he realizes that his name basically would make parents feel okay, you know, with yeah. their kids doing that, yeah. which is similar to, 
someone I'm a fan of, Judy Murray, who right. you know, her, her son's Andy and Jamie Murray, and she has a camp. Uh, and I think basically it's her name because she's Andy and Jamie Murray's mother that make parents feel okay, like taking their kid out of another system and they give them to her. And what part of her brilliance is, I think is the kids are playing tennis, but she's almost doing like the futsalization of tennis where, oh, they'll be playing like through tree branches or with like a deflated ball or so it's like, there's a racket and a ball, but she's really diversifying the challenges, but it's like tennis like enough that the parents are okay with it. And so I think that's kind of a brilliant way to go about it. Super interesting. Uh, so let's go back to this t- uh, soccer just to finish off. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are saying that we're lagging behind in the men's side mm-hmm. and that we don't have the numbers yet playing soccer, which is incorrect. That's incorrect. We have we have more you know registered soccer players than Brazil does. So I think there's always this argument in the U.S. that, oh, well, our best athletes just aren't playing soccer. And there may be some truth to that. You know, I certainly I'd like to see some of the, you know, uh, I mean, who knows like well nash was canadian so that's not a good example actually but yeah. I, i'd be interested to see like russell westbrook if he'd like you know right come up playing yeah. at the same time we like for a country of whatever 330 million people with an enormous number of registered soccer players to say like oh well our best athletes are like what an excuse sure. right it's our development pipeline is not as good as it should be right um and, and our most coveted international players historically have usually been goaltenders who were basketball players before they were before they were goaltenders uh, so I think that excuse of if we just had our other athletes <clears throat> playing is not is not a good one. And we have so many advantages in a lot of sports. Like, so I was a track and field athlete in college, and we have I think something like forty or fifty thousand young adults supported in serious track and field training by our college system. Which my guess is that's probably more than the rest of the world combined. Probably, yeah. And so we have these huge advantages. So for us, I think to kind of you know, make excuses like Cop that. Excuse, like we should yeah. be looking at our development totally instead. Now, and the flip side of, of that coin is the, the women's team, yeah. which is obviously super successful. Yeah. Um, but I think that that almost brings us to this other concept of maybe opportunity. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and by the way, their players were sport diversified. I think one of the advantages, the women's players. Yeah. I think one right. of the advantages of women's, you know, blessing in disguise sort of thing, I guess, um, where they have not traditionally had as many opportunities, uh, is that there weren't as many leagues trying to force them to specialize when they were young. So all these players, you know, Alex Morgan, all these players were very sport diversified, uh, early on. But I also think the biggest factor here, and actually, um, there was some talk about this at the last, um, uh, MIT Sloan sports analytics conference and, and Sue Bird, you know, who's Megan Rapinoe's partner was actually talking about this on stage was that when you go around the rest of the world, it's not to say that women's opportunities are equal in the United States um, or in North America, but it's night and day from what you see in most of the world where women just have almost no opportunities at all and no support at all. I mean, I think the U.S. has something like 40 or 50% of all of the women's registered soccer players in the world. Right. right? So the opportunity here, our college system, the number of players that supports, like, you know, I don't want to say I hope that the U.S. women's team doesn't win the next World Cup, but part of me sort of does because you want to see just more opportunities the around the world, right? right? And and it's just such a function, of, I think, the the really limited opportunities in most other countries that, that you want to see change and see it more. Um, yeah. And this concept of, of opportunity is, is, is prevalent. Like, yeah. I mean, Canada, when Canada had the um, the Olympics come to Vancouver, years before that, 
they started, and I know because my, my brother was uh, involved in, in, in an Olympic sport, a summer sport, but... Um, what sport? Sailing. He, mm. he sailed lasers for a while and oh, then cool. had uh, a, a number of injuries. But um, Did you fix him? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyways, he, he, he did that. But about five years before the Olympics, they started a number of campaigns. One of them was called Quest for Gold, mm-hmm. where they basically gave public money, so funding to these amateur athletes, targeting them roughly four or five years out from the Olympics. And their medal count was better than it had ever been. Just simply by giving these, you know, amateur athletes opportunity and, yeah. and basically money. Yeah. Yeah. Saying, hey, go and practice your sport. We'll we will fund you. Yeah. And it just produced astronomical well, it produced results that were better than they had ever seen by a landslide. Yeah. I mean I think that's you know, I think when we think of like how globally competitive sports are and they are, but at the same time, the truth is that most people in most countries have no opportunity to access like sports in like a real, sure. yeah. You know, I mean, you look at like India, right? It's like a billion people and there are just not a lot of sport. Like obviously cricket is huge, but not in the Olympics. And it's just, most people just don't have a real opportunity. And I think you're seeing as sports are getting more expensive and sports medicine is becoming more important and sports science, you're actually seeing even an increasing tilt toward like the countries that can give opportunity, right. To keep people going. Um, it's actually kind of depressing. Some of the, some of the stuff in range about the Kenyan runners, how they show up at that track at 7,000 feet. And these are like the smart, I I can't remember. That one's in sports. Sports gene. Maybe sorry. It's a bit of a blur, but I, it's this, program where they take the smartest kids in yeah. Kenya yeah. Yeah. and they basically say to them, come to this track, which is at 7,500 feet. It's a dirt track. Mm-hmm. They call and it the stadium. Yeah. Yeah. But there's like cows there's a, on the infield. There, yeah. And there's a cliff on the other side Yeah, and they have to run a lap or 1500 meters, I think. Yeah. And they're told to do this, but the kids come like without any shoes. Yeah. They, some of them come wearing skirts or dress pants. Yeah. Yeah. And they and they're timed to run fifteen hundred meters, yeah. and then I guess from there these scouts sort of weed out. They say, okay, you're really smart, or you've scored well in your test scores, and you also can run well, so yeah. you have a good chance of going to an Ivy League school. Yeah, this this program is actually called the Kensap program, like the Kenya Student Athlete Program. Yeah, and it was started by one guy who noticed that in the Western Rift Valley of Kenya, particularly. Um, there was this high concentration of great runners and he wanted to see if he could give people some other opportunities. And so he goes there that looks up the kids who have scored the highest on like the national tests. Right. Yeah. And selects them for that, for their test scores. And these, and the kids who score that well are usually at these, you know, sort of like boarding schools or private schools and they're not sports, not there. Right. Um, so they show up like the skirts you mentioned, they show up like wearing their school uniform. Um, and he comes and says, okay, you're going to have like a, you know, mile time trial basically. Uh, and we'll see if you can run fast enough that when we call like an American college coach and say, this person has not training at all and just yeah. ran this at altitude, can we use that to help you get you into Princeton or whatever? Um, and it's been and it incredibly works. successful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and some of those students, you know, have ended up becoming quite good athletes. I mean, some of them get into a good school in, in the United States and like stop doing the running, right? Because right. if they weren't on scholarship, like if they went like division three or something, um, then it's like, they weren't running before, right? Yeah, like they didn't exactly. really want to be running. Right. Um, but others have gone on to become really good athletes uh, and it's gotten a lot of them into, into top colleges. And, and that's a bizarre thing, right? Can you imagine going to whatever the 
fanciest private schools are in the U.S. and being like, all right, you're all going to come like do a mile time trial. Yeah, right? exactly. Be no chance. Yeah, bananas. Yeah, but there's an, a, an example of sort of mixed opportunity where these kids yeah. are, hey, there's a, there's a good chance. You're from Kenya. You're from this tribe in Kenya that you're going to be a good runner. At know, least at a higher proportion than you would expect normally, right? Yeah. And yeah. So back to this early specialization then, just to, just to sort of cap it off. Best approach, early sampling period focused by maybe around the age of 13, 14, 15, focusing in more specifically at that point on a single sport. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And I mean, it's hard to tell if that's because of optimal development or that's because of, okay, you're forced to choose then in high school, right? So those German soccer players kept up some more of this unstructured play up till 22. But in the U.S. system, I think it was... um, John DeFiori, who maybe you know from the sports medicine world, I don't know, but um, he showed me some data where he was looking at scholarship Division I college athletes and uh, looking at, like, their specialization versus people who wanted to be on the varsity teams but ended up in intramural teams because they didn't make it. And I think the specialization timing for the those who plateaued at the lower level was something like 13 or something like that. And, and again, this is just an average, lots of variation. And for the scholarship athletes, it was like 14 and a half. And so they were later, but it was in that range. But I have no idea. I don't think anybody knows if that's because that's optimal or that's because like that's basically when they start getting put on high school varsity and coaches are more likely to tell them, you know, you can't do these other sports. Um, and I think you have to weigh all of this with the, with the sort of a little bit of survival of the fittest. You know, if you are yep. specializing and doing a sport from an early age, year round competition, it results in a much higher prevalence of injuries that are going to yep. ultimately prevent your progression on this, on this trend to becoming a professional athlete yep. in whatever it is that you're focusing, focusing That's right. on. And I, I think part of the mixed incentives are, it turns out that the way to develop the best, you know, if, if you're a coach and you just want your eight year olds to win the eight year old championship, right? AAU yes. has our second graders eight something like that AAU has second grade national championships it's like kids like throwing the ball from over their head at the hoop right they're not learning any of the skills right. you really need to learn um and or you know people are full court pressing which makes sure that nobody learns like the skills they actually want to learn right because but that's a way to win when you're with eight-year-olds and if you're a coach and your incentive is only to win the eight-year-old world championships right in like france and australia and and somewhat in canada they've had more holistic development pipelines but in the u.s it's usually like I'm an eight-year-old coach. I got to win now. Coach of eight-year-olds. Right. And if that's your incentive, then you should specialize them and teach them plays and full court press in ways that don't develop the skills, right? And cherry picking and all these other things. Um, But it's not the, it turns out the way to develop the best 10-year-old is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old in a lot of cases. And so you have these competing incentives because if it's just, if you're forced to specialize just to play on the 12-year-old's team, then that's what you're going to do. And this, a Canadian researcher at Queen's University named Jean Cote put together this interesting research that showed that the odds looked at odds ratios of kids in different sports going to the elite level based on the size of the hometown they were born in. And it's all gone down to these much smaller towns and he's profiled some of those towns. And what he sees there is that the kids ultimately have a lot more opportunity to sports sample because it's not so competitive in those smaller towns that they have to specialize to be on the eight or nine or 10 year old teams. Right. So their eight or nine or 10 year old teams are not as good. But then you end up having the elite athletes coming from there. So I think with in the well-intended interest of uh, giving kids a head start, we've kind of like made sure that the elites almost never come from those places where we where right. we specialize them the earliest. And well, there's one other study that, that came to head that I just want to mention, which sure. because you mentioned you know the 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 survival of the fittest. When I first saw some of the soccer data 
you know, in this delayed specialization and more unstructured play, I thought, well, you know, it could just be that the better people are just like, don't have to specialize. And so they're more talented. They can specialize later. And I do think selection of the sport is, is something to do with that. And I thought that would be like all of it is just delaying so that you can, de- you know, the earlier you match somebody, the more likely you put them in the wrong sport. But um, then I came across this study that matched kids at age 11 for skill level. Uh, it, it, the first one I saw was in soccer and then I saw it in some other sports and then tracked them for the next two years. To s- and the, the kids who sport diversified did more unstructured stuff were then better two years later. So that started to convince me that there seems to, at least in that period, you know, the sort of early teens, uh, there's actually some skill advantage to doing this diversification. Yeah, and I guess the problem with that is it's sort of early versus long-term goals. It's yeah. an early sacrifice for a long-term goal. Your, your kid might not be the best player on the team when he's 11, which is yeah. hard to sort of reinforce, right? Yeah. We're in a society that wants instant gratification or reinforcement for something that we're doing right now. Yeah, and I mean, all of our intuition is set up to assume that what we're looking at is a trajectory, yeah. right? Um, to assume that the kid who's doing the best when they're 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that that's just a linear trajectory. We, we assume that about everyone. It's hard not to, right? Because otherwise you have to embrace some uncertainty and say that, you know, the person who's the best at this thing right now might not be the best at, at right. something later. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you you know, going on to be a surgeon is like a pretty elite job. Like, was that always, you know, were you like always the smartest in all your classes and things like that? Or No. <laughs> but I... I think I worked, I, you know, I, I, I liked Malcolm Gladwell's book because it said that, you know, if you work hard at something, you're going to, you're going to end up good. And I think yeah. that's somewhat true. I think, oh, yeah. you know, I'm, I wasn't, I wasn't always the, the smartest at everything I did, but I could, I could outwork a lot of people, you know? I mean, and that's another thing. If you can do that, I mean, I, I, I feel the same way about, about like books. I'm just like, I'm not going to be outworked when I'm doing this research, but right. I also now more appreciate that, like. I'm better at some things than other things uh, right. naturally. And I gravitate toward those, but that's another reason if someone's part of their talent is they can focus longer or work harder. Like it's well, not a linear trajectory, right? Cause they'll build up in a different way. So sure. you, so you want to kind of open up. And then you get into the concept of, of sort of genes to focus or right. genes of drive, you yeah. know, like yeah. I sort of tell myself when I'm doing various things or at work or whatever, you know, I can, I can make an excuse that someone's maybe better than me at, in a, in a way, but I, I can't make an excuse for not working hard. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want the reason for my failure to be that I've been outworked That's ever. Right. You know? You're going to leave it on the field as they say, right? Yeah, like if you, you know? if you lose, you lose, but leave it out there. Right. Um, and I should say like, again, I went, I went to college as a walk on 800 meter runner and, and left as a university record holder and got this funny award. It's called the yeah. Gustav Jaeger Memorial Award for the athlete who is quote, uh, achieve significant athletic success in the face of unusual challenge and difficulty. So of course my it's unusual like, uh, challenge and difficulty was just that lot. I sucked at first. Right. Right. Um, so I'm not sure I would qualify that as unusual challenge and difficulty in the scheme of things. But, um, but I'm certainly not, it was so weird because I like think practice is magical, you know, to, for some people to start thinking of me as like, Oh, the talent guy. Right. Right. Because I think the focus that Anders Ericsson and Malcolm put on, I think the fact is, it, it usually takes people to get good. It takes more practice than most people probably into it. Yes. Um, and that most people could probably get a lot better at most things than they think they could if they put that practice in. Uh, and so I want to make sure that I don't like downplay the importance of this deliberate practice. I don't want you to. Yeah. 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 Be- I think it's important. You got to work hard at anything, right? Right. And I, I think the idea that to me, the extremes of the deliberate practice debate were one extreme was only practice matters and paying attention to and trying to figure out your talents and interests doesn't matter at all. And the other was 
okay, your innate talents and interests matter and also practice matters. And only one of those, I think, based on the research, turned out to be actually extreme. You know, the one right. that says, and, and you mentioned the focus, right? I think there's something called the first law of behavioral genetics that's every kind of personality trait or behavior that's been studied so far has turned out to have some genetic component. Sometimes it's smaller and sometimes it's bigger, but there's always something there. Right. Um, I would argue there are exceptions to that, though. Like, right, if you're, like, if I moved to France, my, my kids would grow up speaking French, and I don't think there'd be a... There'd be a genetic component maybe to the way they used language, but not to the fact that they right. are speaking yeah. French. So I want to switch gears a little bit or maybe just focus more on, on range now. And I, I want to talk about various things that you've mentioned in range. I want to talk about not only development of an athlete and the sports science side of things, but I want to just talk about personal development and mm -hmm. career development and maybe give it sort of a look of becoming a physician. What's the, you know, what's the path to becoming... A, a, a fantastic physician, whether it's a sports medicine doctor or an orthopedic surgeon. And there's a number of, of medical anecdotes that you present throughout range that are very interesting. And I want to, I want to get to those, but so range is your latest book. It's subtitle is why generalists triumph in a in a specialized world. And you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough subtitle to the, to the book. And I think so Right away, it sort of gets a little bit confusing. And the first chapter opens with this comparison of Tiger Woods to Roger Federer mm -hmm. and their differences in their upbringings. Now, I think Tiger Woods sort of, sort of ruined it for all of us in that <laughs> from, a, from the moment he came out of the womb, he was holding a putter or a golf club. And that was it. And that showed us that, he, you know, if you do this, don't do anything else. Just focus on a specific sport. You can become the world champion. And I think, you know, in, in, in you know, the, this era that we're living in, a lot of people are sort of resorting to this Tiger Woods or Serena Williams of just playing golf and holding a golf club or a tennis racket and just doing that and you will become the greatest in the world. Yeah. The, the, let me comment on the Serena Williams story first, by the way. Sure. She and Venus did martial arts. Uh, they did gymnastics. Uh, they also did dance, right, which are common sport diversifying things. And while the, they did, you know, have some deliberate practice early, their father took them out of the tournament circuit purposely for them to focus on school for a while because he didn't want them yeah. playing too much. So, so maybe they sort of go into the, the Roger Federer. May, they're kind or, of a hybrid, sure. I think. Okay. But, um, but, but anyway, but the Tiger Woods story is, is I think, Except for the one way we talked about where, uh, you know, he showed the interest and prowess that his father then responded to it is told like pretty accurately. Like he was right. specialized early and that's what he was doing um, in a very technical way. So I guess the confusion sort of comes in early where you read the title of this book, Why Generalists mm -hmm. Are Better Than Specialists. But then you finish reading this chapter where it sort of says, hey, Tiger Woods is the ultimate specialist yeah. and he is the world champion greatest golfer of all time. Yeah. And I should say, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm self-justifying here. But I would say the subtitle doesn't say why generalists are better than specialists. Um, it says, like, why generalists have, you know, advantages as more people specialize. But some of those advantages are only because other people are specializing. And ultimately, I think, like, the best world is a collaborative one where you have, as Freeman Dyson put it, sure. you know, and I put in the book, we need both birds and frogs for a healthy ecosystem. The frogs are down in the mud seeing all the details. The birds are up above not seeing the details but integrating the knowledge of the frogs. And we need both. And what he said the danger is that we're telling everyone to be frogs and no one to be birds. And that's, you know, yeah. short-sighted. So um, this, but sorry, I'm taking it away from no, the no, no, you're, story. You're, you're fine. <laughs> the, the, the concept here where, as you get further into this book, it, 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 
brings in this concept, and I know we've mentioned it a few times in our discussion today, is this concept of a kind versus yeah. an unkind or wicked environment. Yeah. Why don't, and I, and I mean the, it's, I guess if you're in the ultimate kind environment, it's okay to specialize early yeah. versus if you're, most things are not a kind environment. They're a wicked environment where early specialization doesn't work out to be the best approach. Yeah. And this is, this is, these are terms coined by psychologist so, Robin Hogarth. Oh, so sorry, why don't you, why don't you define them? Okay. Yeah. So these are again, r- psychologist Robin Hogarth's terms and it's a spectrum. And what he meant by a kind environment was one in which, uh, all the information is clear. Um, you have next steps and goals are very clear. There are, uh, you know, explicitly enumerated rules that never change. Uh, you often don't have much in the way of time pressure. When you do something, you get feedback that is immediate and fully accurate. And so that's something um, like golf for the most part, where some of the people who study golf almost classify it as like almost like an industrial task. You're sort of attempting to do certain things with as little deviation as possible kind of over and over and over. And on the other end of the spectrum, wicked learning environments, and again, this is a spectrum, um, where there may or may not be clear rules and they may change at any time. Uh, a lot of information may be hidden and human behavior may be involved. You may have time pressure. Uh, work next year may not look like work last year. And when you do something, you may or may not get feedback. <clears throat> it may be delayed. It may be inaccurate. So actually, one of, the, one of the funny examples that Hogarth used was of a physician who became very prominent in New York City because he could over and over again by palpating a patient's tongue you know, feeling around their oh, tongue with yes. his hands yeah. could say that they were going to get typhoid weeks before they had any symptoms whatsoever and he kept doing this and uh, you know, so he gets wealthy and famous and one of his colleagues later observes that using only his hands he was a more productive carrier of typhoid than even typhoid Mary so, so he was actually spreading the right, disease he was spreading it with his hands and so that's a wicked learning environment because the feedback was actually teaching him the exact wrong lesson sort of the reverse wicked environment yeah I mean that's uh, most of us aren't in an environment that wicked either but most of us are not uh, you know and again chess is also a pretty kind environment yeah. huge store of previous knowledge recurring patterns that's also why it's so easy to automate so right uh, so i'm going to read this is page 30 here it's in my notes i've highlighted a bunch of stuff in here so when we know the rules and answers and they don't change over time chess golf playing classical music an argument can be made for savant like hyper specialized practice from day 1 but are those poor models the most things humans want to learn from yeah so when narrow specialization is combined with an unkind domain, human tendency is to rely on experience of familiar patterns, and this can backfire horribly. So compared to golf, a sport like tennis is much more dynamic with players adjusting to opponents every second to surfaces and sometimes to their own teammates. And I think I want to I play devil's advocate mm-hmm. a little bit with you here. You sort of mentioned golf, and I'm a, I'm a golfer. I, mm-hmm. I played golf growing up. Um, you sort of classify golf as a kind sport, mm-hmm. one that is super um, structured without any variability, I would say. And I, I would argue maybe against that, you know, if you're talking about hitting a single shot, you're, you're, you're very rarely going to be able to hit the same shot twice. It's whether you're looking at the lie of the ball, wind conditions, if there's moisture on the ball, hitting over water or over ground surfaces, uh, I mean, I mean, I can go on all day long here, but you sort of say that this is a kind environment. Yeah, I think in the scheme of things, so a lot of the things like the moisture on the ball and things like that um, are those things that that you feel able to calculate when you're swinging anyway. Um, yeah, I suppose you would be able to. Some of that, some of that sort of strikes me as 
as as what Cade Massey, who does some sports analytics stuff at Penn, calls "what about the wind?" questions, which is when he gives an analytic conclusion. And so one of the examples he um, actually he he didn't do this one, but it's a similar theme, where uh, some analytics were presented to soccer coaches, and it was on a corner kick, should you put one, two, or zero defenders like on the near post? And the analytics show you should always put two because it cuts down the angle so much. And what the coaches say is like, no, but what about like the wind, you know, cause maybe, it de- and like, as if they can like stick their thumb <laughs> up and like know exactly what to do. Right. But I think in the scheme of things that we do, uh, golf is still pretty kind. Like that's getting down to like pretty, uh, minutia in terms of variability. And there okay. definitely is some. And I think part of the reason why specialized practice in golf works is these players are seeing those sand traps and, and, you know, hitting over that same water over and over again, you know, they're often playing the same courses they've played before. So there's not a lot of, a lot of hidden knowledge. And so as they build up experience, um, it becomes something where they're largely trying to repeat what they did before. It doesn't mean it's exactly repetitive, like as if, you know, it were like a machine stamping out like car bumpers on a assembly line, which I would say is more kind. Right. Right. Um, and for a lot of the 20th century, our, our, economy was a very kind learning environment where people were sort of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I think now we've kind of seen what happens when they're not diversified and, and the economy changes to, to a different one. Right. So I would say golf, I still think it's kind of in the scheme of things, but this is totally a spectrum. Sure. And, and as, as Hogarth said, you know, even tennis is pretty kind in the scheme of things. You get immediate feedback. There's lots of recurring patterns. That's what the chunking is based on. So as he said, most Martian of us are playing tennis. Martian tennis, right, right, right? Where you see some people playing, but nobody tells you what's going on. And by the way, the rules of the game could change at any moment. And it's in those uh, disciplines um, where we have to find ways to learn other than just automatic feedback from experience. Right. Um, so you have to kind of diversify your mental models. One of the interesting things that I thought about, and I, I did a lot of thinking as I went through this, but in terms of kind versus unkind sports and, and jobs and so on, and, you know, is being a surgeon an unkind environment or is that more of a wicked environment? And, and I want to get a little bit more onto that in a minute. But when you look at Tiger's record as an individual, when he only plays his own ball in, say, the Masters or the U.S. Open, he's, you know, he's arguably the best golfer of all time. But when you change the format of golf, like in the Ryder Cup, when he has to play with a partner, so in foursomes or alternate shot format, his record just deteriorates and he becomes a very ordinary. In fact, he's got one of the most losing records in the Ryder Cup when he has to play with another person. I mean, that's super interesting, right? I think that's like, um, you know, it's adding some wickedness to the environment, right? Right. It's like where I mentioned in the book in tennis, like sometimes you have to adjust to a teammate, like in a case where he has to adjust to a teammate, even ostensibly where you would think like, well, it's golf, the, you know, the teammate's not like dynamically interfering with you in any way, like that adds a wrinkle. And, and it reminds me of this, uh, kind of classic psychology finding that can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer and transfer is what the term psychologists use to mean taking your skills or knowledge and applying them to something you haven't ever seen before. And what predicts how well you'll, how, how good you'll do at that task is how broad your training base was. It doesn't mean that you necessarily saw the exact problem in training, but the broader your training was, the more it forces you to build these kind of flexible conceptual models that you can bend to other problems. And so I wonder if his training had been broader, you know, including some right. kinds of play, maybe he'd do better at that, but he's trained for a very specific kind of thing and maybe when that wrinkles added uh, it's yeah. a new it's a new challenge it's interesting because his his uh his if you just looked at his record in the world in the in the Ryder cup when when he's playing with a partner he would be a very very ordinary he probably wouldn't be picked for the team very much i mean it, it's really interesting that's that's really interesting because it gets to this 
it sort of feels related to this issue of cognitive entrenchment, right? That's been documented for a long time now in psychology, where if you take specialists and you alter something about the environment, like these can be bridge players or accountants or, you know, maybe, maybe Tiger Woods, you change something just a little bit, it like completely messes them up. Throws them off completely. Right. right. They're very specialized for a very particular thing and small changes can cause these sort of like cataclysmic uh, effects. Right. I mean, he's still obviously very good, but, um, but it is, it's kind of remarkable to hear that something like that would make such a big difference for a player. Like it doesn't, I mean, it's not mentioned in the book, but it was the first thing that came to mind when I thought, I I didn't know that. So (laughs) yeah. 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 Him, his, his record when he's not playing by himself. Um, and how that sort of changes his environment a little bit. Yeah. Um, so versus Roger, mm-hmm. Roger is someone who, he, so as soon as you say, yeah, his parents were tennis coaches, you sort of think, his okay, mom, yeah, yeah. his mom, yeah. he was forced to do anything. You know, he was forced to play tennis from an early age, tennis racket in hand. That's exactly what, what he didn't do. You yeah, know, he, yeah. He sampled all of these sports. They were almost pushing him away from tennis. His mom refused to coach him, actually, because he wouldn't return balls like normally. And so she was like, that's not fun for me. Right. No. <laughs> um, and as my colleague who's now at, you know, at, at uh, Sports Illustrated, but also on the Tennis Channel, John Wertheim, described Roger's parents as pulley. Right. Uh, he said, if anything, they were telling, you know, telling him to take sports less seriously. Uh, and in fact, he, he played about a dozen, dabbled in about a dozen different sports. And but some of them were unstructured. Again, like badminton, he was playing like over his neighbor's fence. You know, he wasn't like in a badminton league or anything. Um, and when his coaches, you know, recognized that he was a good athlete, he was he was good in a bunch of different sports. Um, and wanted to push him up to play with older boys, he declined because he just wanted to talk pro wrestling with, with his, his friends. friends yeah. practice, right. And then you know, whereas Tiger Woods at three was saying, "I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas." When Roger got good enough to get interviewed by a local reporter. Right. Right. The reporter asked him what he'll buy if he ever becomes a pro with his first paycheck. He yeah. has a Mercedes, right? His mother who didn't want him putting all his eggs in the sports basket is like aghast at this. This is horrible. Right. And asks the reporter if she can hear the interview recording and he obliges. And it turns out that Roger said Mercedes in Swiss Germany. He just wanted more CDs, <laughs> yeah. not a Mercedes. That's and a so great, like, great story. So it's like, you know, obviously I picked very extreme examples, but they're, they were so different. Um, and, and Federer actually remarked on that in 2006 when they were both, kind of invincible you know that he's like i think he said i've never met someone so familiar with the feeling of being invincible but on the other hand his story is completely different than mine right so i guess what we're getting at here is is if you want to be maybe the best in the world here it sort of depends on what you're doing yeah and then this comes back to the question of well surgery for instance is that a kind environment or is that a unkind or wicked environment yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is, and again, in sports, the, in, the invasion sports are the ones that seem a little less where you get a, a you know, a clear advantage from some diversification early. And I, I do mention in range, I will say, point out specifically that specialized surgeons have fewer complications, right? Yeah. And not only that, one of the things that surprised me in that research was I thought that was going to be just proportional to the number of times they've done a procedure. And it is, but there was an advantage for specialized surgeons even on top of that. Like, Something about being specialized other than just having done the procedure a bajillion times. So having done the procedure a lot, you know, is a lot of the effect. But then something else about being specialized on top of that leads to fewer complications. I don't know if that's educational or just identity or uh, you right. know, some additive effect of the people you work with or something. I, I don't know what that is. But at the, at the same time, you know, when I was at ProPublica, uh, it's an investigative nonprofit place um, that I left to finish range. I was doing some reporting on 
standards of care in medicine that persist or even become more popular even once higher levels of evidence than ever got it implemented in the first place overturn it basically so this is getting to this cardiology example yeah that was yeah that was one of the main ones i used and so one of the things i noticed in this research was like john ionitis who did this famous paper in 2005 titled why most published research is false that i think now in a lot of disciplines we're having this thing i don't know that it's touching you know sports medicine as much but the so-called replication crisis where it's turning out that a lot of published science isn't true he did one that showed that um a lot of these sorts of things these so-called medical reversals like practices that have been shown actually not to be effective persist in specialist communities much longer because their journals sort of like write off the evidence a lot more and they they're a lot more likely to say but i've seen it work um which is not always the question right like some of the Right, with, with partial meniscus repair. I actually, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I know these studies were sort of... Um, I've, I've read the page on that. Obviously, yeah. it's, in the, it's in the book, but that's like, we could talk about that all day long. There's so much. You're talking about the one, I think it was, it's a Scandinavian trial yeah, that showed Finland, on, the, yeah. on, the, on the advantage of doing a partial meniscectomy for, I think that was an arthritic knee and basically showing that it doesn't, doesn't do very much. Yeah, although I don't think... It's, yeah, and... And there's another study like that. It's just people with like knee pain. They come in, right? And they have imaging and they have torn yeah. meniscus and it gets fixed. But it turns out that like some enormous portion of, if you brought in middle-aged guys, some huge proportion of them would have, Are gonna have torn meniscus, meniscus with no symptoms Correct. at all. Exactly. Yeah. But if you see that, of course, it makes total sense. It's what my, my friend Mike Joyner at the Mayo Clinic calls bioplausible, right? Right. Which is they have knee pain. You see the tear. Obviously, if you fix the tear, it's going to fix it. But it turns out that I guess the human body is not quite as scrutable as right. all that. Um, so let's let's talk about this this anecdote and it's this trial published on the cardiology effect of doing stents. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there have been. So I think leading up to that, I'll say you sort of say it. It's in a wicked world. Relying upon experience from a single domain is not only limiting but it can be disastrous. Yeah. So stents are metal tube that you put yep. into an artery to, to open it up and and life saving. Someone's having a heart attack. Um, but the research I was looking at was about people with stable chest pain. And in that condition, there have been 12 randomized controlled trials that have shown that when you put the stent in, it does indeed open up the artery, right? But what you actually care about is people dying of heart attack and stroke. And it has zero effect on people dying of heart attack or stroke. They die of heart attack or stroke at the same exact rate, just with wide open artery, right? right? And so the, the, I think the, the burgeoning conclusion is that probably this illness is a much more diffuse condition in all these smaller blood vessels and that opening up one pipe, that the human body is not like a kitchen sink right. uh, where you, you know, there's a clog, you open it up, and it, and it works. And the fact is, but even with these 12 randomized controlled trials, this continues to be done at these you know, incredible rates. And in right. fact, some of the, and other people have written about this, but some of the cardiologists I talked to would said they did not they didn't believe the evidence basically and so since some insurances have started making it harder to cover a stent for um you know stable chest pain or stable angina they will schedule appointments for the er and tell the patient like come into the Just emergency the ER and right say that you're having chest pain right and which is and and again i thought at first this would all be about like well you know that old quote like when you pay someone to uh, you know, when someone's job depends on not like understanding something, it's really hard to get them to understand it. So I thought it would just be linked to payment for doing the procedure. But then some places like the Cleveland Clinic, for one, um, separated procedures from compensation. And it 
doesn't fix a lot of the problem. Right. And so I found these, uh, one really interesting study where a group of scientists just went and talked to interventional cardiologists saying, here's the evidence. Like, why are you still doing this at this rate? Right. Um, and the responses, it was interesting. One of the responses was, well, you don't want a Jim Fix situation. Jim Fix was this famous jogging guru who dropped dead um, in middle age. And he didn't have a stent anyway. Like, it's totally irrelevant to him. Right. Okay. He had a totally different condition. Um, but I guess this is what Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel laureate, you know, calls the availability heuristic. Like that, that anecdote must be so dramatic that it sticks in people's mind. And they're like, you don't want to let someone go without intervention. And then they drop dead. But Jim Fix, I think his father died even younger. Like he, because of all his jogging, maybe he out, you know, outlived what, yeah. what he was headed for. But they would say things like, I just can't believe it doesn't work. Right. Uh, you know, because, because the patients, they say like, I come in, the patient feels better. And that, nobody's arguing with that. Right. It's like, but it just doesn't make a difference yeah, in terms of the ultimate out outcome of preventing people in from terms dying. of the ultimate outcomes. Right. So when, and I think, and, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this because there's this great book called ending medical reversal that got me interested in some of this that that's about, um, we often implement, uh, you know, therapies with lower levels of evidence and then it's really hard to get them out even if sure. you kind of blow them up with higher levels of evidence. Um, and Part of the problem that these two doctors, one of them is a hematologist, oncologist, and one's a GP that, that wrote this book, say is that part of the problem is that we've gotten so specialized that everyone's working based on surrogate markers. So instead of looking at the whole organism, you're looking at, okay, did I open up that artery? Forest from the tree. Meniscus? Right. Tree sort of and thing. so somebody has to zoom out and study the whole picture, like the outcomes we actually care about, where we are assuming that these surrogate markers are proxies for what we care about. Right. And it turns out oftentimes They're not. they actually turn out not to be. So the, the, the anecdote that you give, which got me thinking about this, is that, and it's, it's a pretty polarizing sort of anecdote, I would say, that it's, it's better to have a heart attack or maybe, not a heart attack, but maybe chest pain and go to the emergency room during a cardiology, uh, you know, a national cardiology conference when all of the interventional cardiologists are away. Yeah. So it's the opposite to this, this sort of common thing that we say where it's, oh, you know, this is a good place to have a heart attack. I've got all the cardiologists in, or interventional cardiologists in one room. In fact, it's the opposite. It's better to have a heart attack when they're away from the hospital. Yeah, I should say, and, and this, the cardiologist, you know, I sort of took the words straight from Rita Redberg, who was the cardiologist who wrote the editorial um, for that medical study. And she said, my colleagues and I would often joke that our conventions would be like the safest place, you know, to have like a cardiac issue. Uh, and this study sort of turns that on its head. And I think the question is, like, why is that happening? And the, the researchers suggest that, um, you know, a lot of the most esteemed specialists, like at teaching hospitals, are often liable to use uh, kind of cutting-edge procedures haven't, that they're used to using but that have yet. not been proven, right, and that, that have some danger associated with them. So when you go to the emergency room during one of these conferences when the interventional cardiologists aren't away, you're not going to get one of these treatments. You're maybe going to be treated like we historically have treated patients, and that turns out to be actually just as good or maybe a better approach. Yeah, yeah, that was their suggestion. And so so I think, you know, maybe there's some... Uh, and, and usually I think we'd assume that these these really esteemed specialists at teaching hospitals, right? They're right up on the cutting edge, and so you, you want them doing what's the latest thing. But it often turns out that that latest thing might be bioplausible again and make sense, but not actually not actually work. And I'm sure it works for some surrogate marker, right? Yes. I'm sure it changes something. But, again, it's not at the point where someone has zoomed out and said, does this affect the outcomes we actually care about? And when you look at that stuff, it's crazy. Like this drug, 
one I was reading journal studies about atenolol, which was like one of the first beta blockers. Beta blocker, yeah. Um, and turns out to lower blood pressure, but people die of heart attack and stroke at the same rate, just with better blood pressure numbers. And that's not to say other beta blockers don't work, but this was a popular one. And you can actually see the prescribing for it. That I think is getting embraced because it's still prescribed like crazy, but it's coming down steadily. And I think it's just scary, this idea that what seems like a perfect proxy when you zoom out and look at the whole organism isn't. Uh, getting better, yeah. yeah. And it's it sort of takes this, this silo effect of getting trapped in your own specialized world that you're so super specialized you fail to see some of the surrounding factors which may be more important than what you're actually honed in on. Yeah. One of the things you, you, you say that's interesting, it is a widespread phenomenon if you're asked to predict whether a particular horse will win a race or a particular politician will win an election, the more internal details you know about any particular scenario, for example, the physical qualities of the specific horse or the background and strategy of a particular politician, the more likely you are to say that that scenario you are investigating will occur. Yeah, this is the so-called inside view, cognitive yes. bias. And our intuition when we have to make a decision about a scenario is to gather as many details. Right. That's what we consider like, you know, like it's an insider trading advantage or whatever for whatever we're trying to predict. But we have this tendency, again, to whatever scenario we investigate, as we get more details, we'll say that it's more likely to happen to the point where there are these studies where people are given some scenario. Let's say it's something that could happen with, some country, you know, let's say it's an election and there's three candidates and, and people are asked to identify one at a time, like how likely is it this person will win? What's the probability? And they'll end up over a hundred percent probability when they add up the three different scenarios because they will have investigated one at a time. And as they learn more details, it goes up and up and up. Right. Um, and the way to kind of combat this, and that doesn't mean it's not important to know some details, but what you want to do is start with the so-called outside view where you don't dive into all those little details and you try to sort of not only investigate one scenario, you know, investigate yeah. both sides, but also find analogous situations about what usually happens. Sure. Um, and that sometimes I'm telling myself when I'm doing stuff in surgery, I'm, I'm trying to find a reason not to do it or sort of say the opposite of that of like, why wouldn't you do this? Or why wouldn't you pick this horse or this politician and yeah. so on to give you more of a sort of a, a, a wider range or outlook on the overall problem. That, that's a great way to think about it. And I think one tool that has shown sometimes to help people, you know, mitigate that inside view is to say, think ahead to why this, why this failed. Why would it have failed? You know, if you right. think ahead to why it didn't go right. But that's interesting. I have a question for you because sometimes when I talked to, when I was writing about, uh, you know, stuff like the partial meniscectomy, um, you know, that, uh, the, the so-called sham surgery, right, where an incision was made and they bang around and sew them back up and send them to physical therapy yes. and did just as well. Yeah. I was talking to some surgeons about this, uh, especially, you know, some people who work with pro athletes, and they would say that when patients come to them, like, those patients want surgery when they get there. And if they don't give it to them, then they'll give them, like, bad ratings online and they'll go totally. doctor shopping. And so one of these surgeons was basically telling me, like, sometimes I've just been like, fine, whatever. I'll do yeah. the surgery because it's not going to hurt them. Yeah. Um, and this it's, it's a it's a problem in this society, I think, and you know the one that we live in. In that, um, if you're doing nothing or there's no sort of, it, I guess the classic example would be that someone that comes to the general practitioner's office with a cold, and the doctor examines the patient and says, "Listen, you, you know you've got a cold, you've got a virus, and an taking antibiotics for oh, a virus yeah. <laughs> is like taking Smarties." You know, it's going to do nothing, yeah. but they want some sort of an intervention. 
So, you know, that the doctor ends up prescribing an antibiotic and yeah. the patient takes it. No, there's no effect because it's yeah. a virus. And that, that has ultimately led to the desensitization of these antibiotics and that they, they, they don't, they no longer work for, you know, the infections that we used to treat because we've developed antibiotic resistance in the, in the bacterias because of people taking them too much. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm all for maximizing the placebo effect, but that's a case where it actually has a harmful side effect, right? For sure. Antibiotic resistance. And, and I think people also don't realize, right. They show up at the doctor probably when they're feeling really bad. And so like there's a regression to the mean after yeah. that, right? What do you mean you're not giving me an antibiotic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then they just go to the next guy. Same thing with, with surgery. It's, I spend a lot of time trying to talk people out of an operation. And there's a lot of, a lot of anecdotes with orthopedic surgeons. Like the shoulder's a good one. You sort of orthopedic shoulder surgeons will, will joke around about if you want an excuse to do an operation on someone's shoulder, get an MRI because you'll of, find something. <laughs> of, course, of course, you know, there's no such thing as a 50 year old with a normal MRI of the shoulder. So even if they have no symptoms, correct. You know, and I, and I, the hip is another good example. Actually, we talked about Philippon, but he did a trial that looked at asymptomatic patients for hip pathology where I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was sort of like 30 or 50 patients, asymptomatic patients. And he got MR arthrograms of their hips. And that's why they put like radioactive dye. In yeah. They inject right? a little bit of dye into the hip joint, which allows us to delineate labral pathology or labral tears a little bit closer. You know, now we've got these higher magnets, which we don't need to use it as much, but 70% of people had labral tears. Really? 70%? Yeah, 70%. So, so someone comes in, this is a common thing that I see because I, I sort of specialize with in hip arthroscopy and someone will come in with an MRI and they'll say, look, I have a, a labral tear. And in the first half of the visit, I'm, I'm sort of talking to the patient and going, you do realize that about 70% of people, if we got an MRI of your other hip, there's a good chance that it's also going to have <laughs> labral amazing. tear. So we need to sort of figure out, hey, is it the labral tear that's causing your symptoms? You know, it might be something else that is going to be adequately treated with physical therapy or an injection or rest or, you know, so, yeah. something that's non-surgical. But a lot of people come in and they say, I've got a tear. It's not going to heal on its own. You've got to go and fix it. Yeah. And a lot of the times it's it's just time spending talking them out of Hey, you know, maybe we should try something else before we rush to the operating room. That's that's interesting. I have two questions about. Well, one is so in those studies in Finland about the partial meniscectomy, it's like some of the surgeons say, "But the patients got better," and you're like, "Yes, but the the placebo patients who just went to physical therapy also got better." Right. Like, nobody's saying they didn't get better. But this reminded me one of the surgeons I talked to, um, you know, about this issue of parents uh, of patients like demanding surgery. Yeah. He would say that he thought like. You know, there's the ESPN ticker or whatever, and you see, I'm, I think you mentioned like Adrian Peterson had some surgery or something, and people see that, and they come in, and they're like, I have this pain like he had. I want that same surgery that, that he had. But like those ticker, like you don't really know the details of what's actually going on with sure. that athlete, and sometimes it's not, they're not given the exact thing, right? And of course, there's like HIPAA, and, and so he, he sort of felt that was like a nefarious effect of this. Um, it's almost like an advertisement for certain surgeries because pro athletes had them, even though you don't really know the real scenario and right. people come in and they're like, I need what that guy had. Sure. And it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to find the details. Like you spend a lot of time reading news reports and no one really knows exactly what was done because of, as you mentioned, HIPAA and stuff like that, but you're never, and, and, and a lot of times patients, it's like, oh, well my, my friend had this done to her knee and she's doing great. So can you just do that to me? Well, I don't, I don't know what your friend had, you know, she yeah. could have a completely different problem than what you have in your knee. So, um, 
yeah, there's 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 that. So are people receptive to it when uh, you try to counsel them out of surgery? Like, how does that usually go? I think it, it depends on the person, really. A lot of times they're not receptive. And the trouble that a lot of doctors have is is that I suppose it depends on your ethical character as a doctor. That patient, yeah. you know, could walk across the room and across the road and she's going to find another doctor who's just going to say, yep, you've got a meniscus tear in your knee. Let's let's fix it. You does know, it. Does anyone ever say like, awesome, I don't have to have surgery? Yeah, no, they uh-huh. do. A lot, okay. of, a lot of people do. Some people not so much or less, okay. less or more resistant to sort of saying you don't have to have an operation on your, on your knee or hip or whatever it is. And what about for the younger people? So are you getting more youth athletes now too? That for sure. For and, sure. And when they come in, what, and what's like, is there anything that you've been seeing rising like particular types I think, of injuries? I think and, throwing injuries okay. in this country. There's a lot more of physis or growth plate injuries or what we call little league or shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I w- would ha- had only read about really in textbooks in, in, in my training at the University of Toronto. Obviously, baseball is not like it down in Texas is not like it is in Canada, but, mm-hmm. but this, this thrower's shoulder in the young athlete where they injure their physis from throwing a baseball so much is something that you typically would only read in a textbook, but you see it. I see it every week, you know. And you're like, you look pretty young, so that must have not not so long from only reading about it in textbooks to seeing it yeah yeah in in the past few years yeah and do their parents when they come in are they are they like they need well i guess they they do need surgery no Um, no a lot of those the the, the treatment for that is just rest oh okay shut them down don't let them throw for about three months and then slowly progress back sure that goes over easily exactly right it's a it's a problem you're saying you can't throw a baseball for three months during the summer you know so that's 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 often met with resistance but i think sometimes it's a blessing that they don't have to have an operation so yeah that's one thing anyways a couple other things that i want to talk to you about before we go here and this is this set free by failure mm. so you talk there's a big section in the book about van gogh mm. and i wouldn't say that he's sort of like the model that you should you know structure yourself around in in pursuit of excellence but one of the couple of quotes i'm gonna i'm gonna make a mess of them but you gotta you gotta fail early and quickly to be a success, which is very, very counterintuitive to some of the stuff that, you know, never, never, never fail, never give up. Yeah. But if you're in the wrong setting, a, 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 a quitting on something is, is maybe the right direction. Yeah. And I think that, that never, never, never give up, by the way, that's like the, you know, most famously Churchill quote and they we, forgot the end of it, right? The end of it, which says, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Right. <laughs> um, which is same as like the Jack of all trades, master of none quote. I think it's culturally telling that we've cut off the end, which is oftentimes better than master of one. Um, so Van Gogh had about five different careers, each of which he deemed to be an incredible work ethic, right? Everywhere he went, he didn't necessarily get along with everyone or, or, or succeed in the job, but everywhere they remarked on his incredible work ethic because he would dive into something and say, like, this is my calling. This is the only thing. Uh, and, you know, eventually flame out for one reason or another until he was sort of, you know, nearing 30 years old and purchased a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing. Uh, and that worked out okay. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, one of the reasons, and I thought about writing this in, that we may not consider him a model is that we think he committed, like he, he took his own life, right? Um, died by suicide. Uh, but if you read the, there's a full appendix in the biography of him by his Pulitzer Prize winning biographers um, where they make a very strong case that that's not true and that that, that actually, you know, the, the mythology around his death was sort of codified by a, a piece of historical fiction like 40 years later. Um, that that made us think we know what what really happened there, right? Um, uh, but anyway, 
the the point was I was using his story as an example of this search for so-called match quality, which you mentioned a little right. bit earlier in the context of sports, which is this term that economists use to describe the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities and the work that they do. Um, and it turns out that we aren't usually very good at figuring out what we're good at and interested in until we have an opportunity to try things. So as some of the the advice that stuck with me, since a lot of things I've turned out to be good at were not the things that I presupposed before I got to try things. Uh, so what stuck with me was the work of this woman named Herminia Ibarra who studies how people basically pursue match quality and often career transition to find it. And she had this quote, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, that I loved, which meant which means that there, there are all these kind of personality tests and career gurus that kind of want to convince you that if you just take this quiz or just introspect that you'll know what you're interested in and good at. But in fact, the, the research shows we actually have to do stuff and be exposed to stuff to figure out who we are, right? Our insight into ourselves is sort of constrained by our roster of previous experiences. So we have to act and then think in some cases. And so sometimes people find a fit earlier, but more often they have to cycle through some things right. and, and figure out what's a fit. And so in some of these studies, like, um, let's say two that are relevant. So one in Steve Levitt, the so-called Freakonomics economist, did this study where he had people make major life decisions. Well, not all major, actually. It ranged from, like, should I get a tattoo to should I have a kid? But but the most common question was, should I change jobs? And people, uh, there was a digital coin flip, and they would, uh, you know, make the choice based on the coin flip. And what he found was that, the people who switched jobs, that was the most common question, um, were better off yeah. later on. So, again, these were people who were already considering a change, right? So there's there's a preselection there. But once the conclusion was kind of if you're considering a change, you should probably make it. And it turns out to be because people usually change in response to match quality information. So they get set back, but then they have a higher growth rate. So a good kind of example of this is this natural experiment I talk about in range where this economist looked at the higher ed systems in England and Scotland, very similar in the periods that he studied, except for the English students had to specialize earlier to decide like which program of study in university to apply to. Scottish students could keep sampling throughout the end of university if they wanted. Um, and what he, what he, his question was, who wins the trade-off, the early or late specializers? And what he found was that the early specializers jump out to an income lead because they have more domain-specific skills. But the late specializers get to try more things. They more often end up studying something that wasn't available in their their previous schools. And they end up picking a better fit. And so when they do pick, they have higher growth rates. And by six years out, they, they fly past the early specializers. And the early specializers end up quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, basically because they were made to choose so early that they more often made poor choices. And so it turns out that in many cases, the the advantage to match quality to being able to figure out where you fit uh, exceeds the advantages to just getting a head start right. um, in the long run. And so, you know, the only way, and again, that's not to say that you can't find a good fit right away. It happens, sure. but in aggregate, it looks like people often have to learn a bit about themselves and about their opportunities in the world before they can maximize that, that match quality. And this is this other concept of a polymath. I think you talked about Andy Outerkirk. He's an yeah. inventor at 3M in yeah. Minnesota. And I remember reading this part of the book and sort of thinking, that's what I want to be. Yeah. I want to be a polymath. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's asked me about him in all of the interviews I've done in this book, honestly. Really? Yeah. Which, I find that that's, uh, that's, that's strange. I think it's, you know, that's the one thing that I took where I'm like, he talks about this concept of the polymath, which I'll let you explain here. But I was like, if, if you want to be a great surgeon, 
that's what you got to be. You got you have to be a polymath. Interesting. I want to hear you elaborate on that, but I'll I'll talk a little bit about so Outer Kirk. He so he's an inventor at 3M and and he's became a so-called serial innovator. He was research R and D magazines like an inventor of the year. And oh, this guy's incredible. Yeah, and his 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 sort of most prominent invention was he assembled and led the team that developed this thing called multi-layer optical film. That's basically just like successive layers of very thin plastic that's in like all the stuff we have on this table right my cell phone your computers and it's in there bouncing around light and reflecting refracting and transmitting it in sort of customized ways so that you get more light coming out of your screen back at you and so it requires less battery power because it's not like going away um and this wasn't this didn't involve like any of the things he was specialized in right he was a he was a chemist and what he said, one of the things that stuck with me was he said, you know, I was told my whole career you want to specialize in this. And he, and he started at a community college, like he had a very winding path, is that you want to specialize in, I think his, he was told to specialize in something like um, energy transfer between gas phase molecules right. or something. And, so, and, and he said what people didn't tell me was that it's actually a huge advantage to learn what he called the adjacent stuff, which means like all these things other areas that could interact with that where you can draw on other people's right and, and 3m created this thing they, they call the i didn't mention this in the book but the periodic table of technologies where all of the stuff that all their inventors are working on they create a periodic table that's sort of organized by theme so everyone can see like what other people are doing and say like oh they might have the, the you know something that bears on my problem um and outer kirk he kept having these sort of breakthroughs and so he got curious and he saw in 3m some people kept making breakthroughs and some people didn't. And sort of like, what are the ingredients what of innovation? Yeah. yeah, and when he studied innovators, what he found, first internal to 3M, where he studied it because he had access to, you know, a lot of stuff there. What he found was that there were different types of innovators. There were specialists, generalists. The specialists were people who had, and they, they quantified this based on how many different technology classes they had worked on. The patent office, you know, has like 450 different technology classes right. and a bunch of subclasses. And the specialists would have worked on one or a very small number of technology classes over their career. The generalists would have worked on a bunch of different technology classes, not gone as deep. There were dilettantes who, you know, didn't go that broad or deep, and they were very unlikely to make big contributions. Sure. And the, and the, the specialists and the generalists both contributed in different ways. But the, the biggest contributions came from the polymaths, yeah. who were typically people who had an area of specialty, but then as their career went on, instead of going deeper, deeper, deeper like the specialists, they actually sacrificed some more depth to go broad. And in the long run, they ended up working across even more technologies than the generalists in the long run. And they would often take something from one area and combine it in another area. So when you'd see Outer Kirk's patents, sometimes there'd be like 12 different technology classes mentioned in, you right. know, in one patent because he'd be taking something from one area that might be normal in one area and bringing it to another area where it's like seen as yeah. innovation yeah. basically. And you just kept doing that over and over and over again. And I think you can apply this to, to my, my specialty of orthopedic surgeons. Now we have this super specialization where guys only do knee surgery. Uh, and it's almost, we joke about it, like only do right knee surgery. You That's know, like, isn't that right They said we have to think like, do we have left hand surgeons or whatever yeah. it is? Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's, it's this concept of polymath where I think you, you know, I'm always taking things that I figure out in the shoulder and applying them to the hip, whether it's anchors oh, or, you know, different angled scopes or something like that. And it's, I, I want to be focused on the individual areas, but I also want to have some depth. And I think being trained in, in, in orthopedic surgery residency, you see these guys that you learn from one, one of my mentors, Mike McKees, he could do anything. And it was just, he was so experienced in so many different parts of the body that, he could take these principles of surgery 
and sort of apply them to different areas and be very successful at that. That's really interesting. I mean, so that's an example of, you know, ultimately we talked a little bit about the subtitle of the book and, and ultimately I didn't set out to write about generalists. Like the term only appears a couple times in the book. It was more about this idea of range. Like how do you harness the benefits of being broader than you have to be right, right? as a, uh, you know, sports medicine surgeon, you don't have to be very broad ultimately. Like you could, like you said, Correct. just keep yes. doing the exact same thing, but maybe there are advantages to being broader than you have to be. And so the last chapter sort of, I specifically focused on scientists largely Yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. If you look at the general public, scientists are specialized, but it was looking at how if some of these people sacrifice doing the same thing over and over for more breadth. And that becomes kind of their, their advantage. I'd like to think so, you know, just, First of all, it's it's kind of, it gets kind of boring. You know, I wouldn't want to <laughs> do the a... exact same operation every day. But uh, I think you become good at the parts by overall focusing on the whole. I, I don't know That's if I said that right, but um, I think there's certainly experience you gain from from operating on different areas that you can take and translate to different parts of the body. And what do you think? And I'm that probably leads to sort of like innovative uses of things, right? Like lateral sure. thinking, where you take something from one area and move it to another. But I wonder. Um, you know, if that also makes you kind of better at a, so my, my sort of read overall, uh, and this, this didn't go in the book, but I was thinking about if I needed surgery, right? Cause at one point I was yeah. thinking about getting certain surgery and my, my feeling was if I need to have the surgery, I want a specialist in this particular surgery, but I'm also a lot more likely to have a surgery that I don't need if I go to the specialist first. Right. So I could end up having right. a low you, chance of complications in the surgery. I don't you need. You sort of say that. And I actually have it in my notes here. You say, if you need to have surgery, you want a doctor who specialize in the, specializes in a procedure and has done it many times, preferably with the same team, just as you would want Tiger Woods to step in for your life to make a 10-foot putt. They've been there many times and now have recreated a well-understood process that they have executed successfully before. Same, And then you go on, I think, to, to about airlines and yeah. you know show that when a plane goes down, it's very commonly a new flight team that's not familiar with each other. That's right. Yeah. It's like in the yeah, national transportation safety board looked at commercial air accidents. It wasn't always going down, but, but you know, Some sort of of something going wrong. Yeah. And it was like, you know, two thirds or 70% or something were on a flight crews first day working together. Right. Um, right. So I think if you like pass the cockpit when you're going and yeah, Hey, for, first <laughs> nice time together to guys, you. then maybe you should, you know, get to Turn drinks around. early, like on the yeah. flight. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, yeah. for sure. And the, the problem and I was talking to the uh, the flight safety manager for Delta got interested in range. And he, he's a pilot himself. But he was saying that especially these days, like the problems we have are not someone being able to land in a crosswind. Like we've got so much automation, like that's not the thing Interesting, anymore. Yeah. The problem is decision making. And, you know, the guys that came through sort of military aviation, they're used to like improvising. And so, because they were in all kinds of crazy situations where sure. stuff happened. So they had this, again, breadth of training, fixed Experience. breadth of transfer. They've had to improvise. Whereas the ones who are coming up in a more specialized role where they've done commercial aviation the whole way through, great until something unusual happens. happens and yeah. then what they find, and again, this was another like research-backed finding he was saying, is that the problem becomes sticking to what you always do even when the situation clearly changes and you still like stick to what you always do. And so he says, so he actually... So he says he has a sign on his door that says, stop thinking like a pilot, like when it comes to safety. And because yeah. they will sometimes make judgments that are would be weird even to an outsider. Right. If, if the situation I mean, just that someone could see was disastrous even from the outside. Right. And so one thing he tried to do is he said they were so compliance focused that it was like, I know the steps. 
I'll do them over and over and over, that they shifted their sort of uh, orders they give the pilots to say, compliance comes second, safety comes first, trying to tell them sometimes you have to improvise yeah. like and vary up their training so that they aren't like just doing the same so thing. So this is real interesting because I think the same thing about surgery. It's not what makes a good surgeon is not when things are going smoothly. It's when something goes wrong in the OR and whether or not you're able to adapt and fix that problem. And the, the, the good surgeons that you train from in your, in your residency programs are typically the, the most experienced guys who have seen a bit of everything. Maybe they've gone to Afghanistan and done surgery in those sorts of circumstances. Oh, wow. Like oh, so Mike really McKee is an example, but, but, uh, the most experienced guys are the guys that can deal with adverse conditions in the OR and just make it look normal. Yeah. So having a lot of different stuff. Right. right. And, and I sort of wonder, do you think in the same way that this, you know, the, the Delta safety manager was telling me that like it was these guys who had this, these unusual experiences of improvising early who do better and the ones who've been trained very specifically on commercial aviation who have some problems. Do you think as we become more specialized um, and fewer people are, surgeons are doing this stuff in Afghanistan where they're getting a head start on exactly this, what they'll do forever. Do you think we may lose some of that ability, you know, to I think, improvise in that I think way? probably. Yeah. So that, that, that's interesting. So it could be like a potential perverse effect of uh, maybe, did you see there was like a New York Times article about that suggested that uh, some medical schools were having more trouble with surgeons because like they didn't have diversified motor skills? Did you see that article? Was that like a big topic of conversation? <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. I okay, I got to send you that one. I yeah. just thought of it, but I'd be I, I don't know anything about the research that went into that at sure. all, but I'd be curious in your your take. Was, I know there's more pressure with training programs of just focusing early on on what you it's sort of a it's a it's a problem in, in, in picking a specialty, for instance. You have to know from a very early stage in your medical training what, you're, what you want to do. Mm. Um, and it's not, based on your book, it's, it's probably not the best idea. A sampling period of, for instance, the different surgical specialties is probably a better approach overall. Yeah, and I mean, I think you might, first you might maximize people's talent. Like, the more you can delay selection and the broader experience you can give people, the more likely you get them in the spot that's the best for their, right. for their talent, right? This is like that comic book anecdote that you give. Yeah. You say that. It, it's pretty interesting. You're looking at what produces a good producer of successful comics. Yeah. And it's not years of experience. That had nothing to do with it. Um, resources, nothing to do with it. It was The answer was how many different genres the creator had worked in in throughout his career. Yeah. That was the most, you know, that was the, something that would produce the most number of successful comments was how many genres you've actually worked in. Yeah. And one of the reasons I liked this research was because I tried to pick research when I could find it that didn't suffer from survivor bias. So in this research, this, the researchers could follow the value of comics up or down, right? So they could see the failures and, and the successes. And that, and that was really interesting, right? It was, it was this genre experience where people would sort of merge things they learned in different genres that made them more likely to make the blockbuster comics that became incredibly valuable. And it was, seemed like a surprise to the researchers because they had come from studying industrial processes where years of experience, number of repetitions, and resources make a huge difference. But it turned out that this creation of comic books was not like an industrial process. One of the things I thought was even more interesting, but people haven't remarked on much, so I think maybe most people didn't find it more interesting from that study, was that if you looked at er, in, early on, you, could rep, you were better off replacing someone with broad genre experience with a team of specialists. So if someone had worked in three genres, you were better off having three single genre specialists than having that one person you know, as a creative team. Okay. But after five genres 
you were better off having the broad individual, you could no longer replace them with a team of specialists, right? Teams right. of specialists still got better with more diverse experience, but individuals with more diverse experience got better even faster. So it's another case of they look behind at first when they're accumulating that breadth, but at a certain level, the individual, you know, as they say in the paper, the individual becomes the best unit of knowledge integration. So a couple last points before we finish this. There's this I wanted to ask you, it's the, it gets a little section in the book, but this integrated science program that you talk about in Northwestern mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's, it's sort of, it, it hints on this topic of, of the outsider looking in saying you need to specialize from an early age or you're going to be left behind. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, even when it comes to sports and development of athletes, you've got these parents saying, well, if he doesn't start pitching or throwing or practicing his putting now, you know, he's going to, he's, there's no way he's ever going to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. And again, if, 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 as we increasingly set up systems that enforce that to be true, then, you right. know, maybe, but, um, yeah. So that the integrated science program, I thought this was really interesting because it was, it was focused on the work of this woman, Deidre Gentner at Northwestern, who is probably the world's expert in analogical problem solving, which is like when you have to solve problems you've never seen before, or sometimes nobody's ever seen before, it turns out that one of the really useful tools is trying to analyze the structure of the problem and use analogies from other fields uh, or other domains that have similarly structured um, problems. And so again, like in, in scientific research, you know, some of the research I talk about is like labs that were more likely to draw a large number of that had a di- people with diverse backgrounds and more likely to draw diverse uh, analogies and lots of analogies were more likely to come up with lots of ideas and make scientific breakthroughs compared to labs that had everyone who specialized in the same thing. Where, as, as this researcher, Kevin Dunbar, said, when you have that, it's no better than having one person, basically. Right. Um, and so Gentner came up with this test that essentially asked people to sort of solve problems and analyze problems. Uh, and again, one of the, actually the hallmarks in a number of different studies of expert problem solvers compared to novices is they spend more time trying to figure out the structure of the problem before they just like jump in and start doing stuff. Um, and so she came up with this test where people have to sort of analyze the structure of different types of problems in a, in a wide range of domains, some of which they've never done any work in. And she gave this test to a lot of Northwestern students, and students tended to do pretty well in their major. Um, but the students that did well even outside of anything they had studied were the ones in this program, like the integrated science program, where they had taken, they didn't have a major, they had a minor in a whole bunch of different areas. And the goal was they learn how different domains approach problem solving, right? They learn like the mental models that different domains have. And so they did the best. But then when I went around and asked her colleagues, you know, they were like, eh, we're not so into this program because those kids get behind. So you have like the world's expert in this kind of important creative problem solving saying like, here are the kids who are doing the best and her own colleagues saying, yeah, but those kids are behind. Right. So to me, that sort of you know, embodies these cognitive dissonance or sort of opposing forces between Head Start and and what might be optimal development. Right, and it's this counterintuitive idea of just you can't do that because you're going to fall behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or again, in fact, you're not. You're maybe going to fall behind in the short term, but in yeah. the long term, you're going to end up ahead. Yeah. So to me, again, the thematic uh, uh, subtitle of the book is you know how what sometimes looks like a head start actually undermines long-term development. And that goes from fundamentally the way we learn new material to sometimes our career choice and things like that. Yeah. And, and so my thinking, again, to parrot Freeman Dyson, we need both the frogs and the birds, the specialists and the generalists. But I think we set up all of our systems uh, just to incentivize the head start and the specialists. Um, and I think that's kind of 
short-sighted in, right. in the wicked world. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. Congrats on your book. Um, Thank you. I think it's a fantastic book, and I'm sure it'll resonate with a lot of different people, uh, myself included. I want to get you and Malcolm Gladwell in a room and, and do some sort of a debate on this. I'd love to do that. I mean, there's a couple of us, yeah, doing some of that online. Although I think now that we're kind of on the same ground. So when in March, when we were invited you back. You guys are now on the same team. Yeah, yeah. So when we were invited <laughs> back to the scene of our first debate, this time it was much more just a conversation. And toward the end, it's somewhere, you know, in the last 10 minutes in the YouTube, I think. He says, I now feel I conflated two ideas. The idea that a lot of practice is important to become great, which is true with the idea that that implies in order to become great at like X thing, you should do X and only X from as early as possible, which I now believe is false. And that, that's, that's what I, he's come with. over onto your team. You've, yeah. You've persuaded him. He's very open-minded. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I'm, he's, he's an incredible, incredible brain. He's, I, he's very, very smart, obviously with all of his books and knowledge. I think when we first debate in our first debate, he very easily could have seen it as like a zero sum competition where he should just try to crush me, you know, destroy you, probably yeah. would have, but, um, I don't think he saw it that way. I think he saw it as like, let's yeah. have this conversation and it became very productive uh, partnership for both of us whereas there were some other writers who i think were sort of derivative of his 10,000 hours whose books did well who were very much like if i put it in print i'm going to defend it right. you know tooth and nail which i think as someone who writes about science as a you know more matured in this area i realize if you're going to write about science something you're writing about is going to prove to be wrong sure Problem is you don't know what it is right now, right. so you better be willing to like update Hedge your mental your models, yeah. yeah, or it's just not like intellectually. I guess honest. he's he's showing his range as a person. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is nobody's really called me on this before, but um, in the sports gene, I actually cite one of my own magazine articles as being wrong because when I had time to do more research and realized that that was kind of a scary thing, where I spent like months doing an article, and then once I had you know for the first year of my books, I tried to basically do nothing but read ten journal articles a day. Yeah, um, and once I had done that, I realized like shoot. You know, I got something wrong and it, it passed fact checking because people with PhDs were saying this is right. But then when I had more time to examine it, I realized they couldn't actually make those conclusions from from the data that they had. So right. I think you got to be willing to to update. And, you know, in, in range, I confess that I think my own master's degree was uh, awarded for work that was I did accidental statistical malpractice on, you know, and right. I only learned of, I only learned about that as a journalist who writes, who was writing about poor scientific practices. But sure. I mentioned this in alumni interview with my alumni magazine recently. I'll be really impressed if they print that. I was just kind of like, by the way, yeah. you know, the master's degree it was a f I have from you yeah. guys. I think that research <laughs> yeah, would not stupid. replicate. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Anyways, thanks very much for doing this. This has been, uh, this has been awesome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsor, Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Downs. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.